Hi everybody, it's Sean, your host of Autobiography of a Schnook, and if you're listening to this, well, I just want to tell you this is kind of the extended bonus content for this episode. If you already listened to the main episode, Chapter 32, then what you're about to hear is an extended version of the Music for Schnooks segment, in which Lisa Ferg and I talk in great detail about our experience at Beetlefest, the Fest for Beatles fans. There are some stories that we had to cut out, unfortunately. You're going to hear them here. You're going to hear about more guests that we've seen, more experiences that we've had. If you've already listened to the main episode and you really don't want to hear this long version of it, then simply mark it as played in your podcast player, and I will talk to you again next month, possibly even sooner. Thank you for listening. Now, what we have here on Autobiography of a Schnook is something pretty significant, something celebratory, something festive, because we now have every single person who was ever a guest on Autobiography of a Schnook together. Yay. Yay. Yeah, that first yay you heard was uh, somebody named Lisa, whom I happen to be married to, and who's not saying anything all of a sudden. (laughs) And the laughing is uh, um, Ferg, if that is your real name. It is. And welcome. Welcome, Ferg. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. And I've gathered you here today to talk about something we've all experienced in our musical lives, and that is Beetlefest, which is now called the Fest for Beatles fans. Yay. Just to (laughs) get a little bit of history out for people who aren't familiar with it, Beetlefest is run by Mark and Carol Lapidos. It started September 1974 at the Commodore Hotel, which is now the Grand Hyatt in New York City. It came about, and we know this because we're told this over and over and over again, when Mark Lapidos met John Lennon and (laughs) pitched the idea to him to have this Beatles fan festival, and John Lennon said to him famously, I'm all for it. After all, I'm a Beatles fan too. Hey, if you had that kind of story, you would tell everybody in the world every five <laughs> oh, minutes hell yes. as well. Yes, and he does. <laughs> I mean, that is pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Yeah, if I met a Beatle, I would spend the rest of my life finding people to tell that to. Especially that Beatle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having said that, the original plan, well, I, I shouldn't say the original plan, but an original plan was that John Lennon would show up and present a guitar for auction, but he kind of chickened out later on. He's like, no, I can't do it. I'm, I don't know what people are going to do with me there. So he sent May Pang in his place for the auction in the first fest. All four Beatles actually sent something. John sent a guitar via May Pang, his personal assistant slash mistress at the time. <laughs> Paul McCartney sent a guitar as well. George Harrison sent a table of all things. Uh, and uh, Ringo sent autographed drumsticks. I think he does that all the time. They're always giving away autographed drumsticks. Dread thing is you hit the drums with. There we go. And uh, not only did uh, May Pang uh, provide the guitar, but she also did some shopping on John's behalf in the marketplace. Uh, I think one of her big things was she bought up a lot of bootlegs because, well, John didn't have copies of those recordings that he himself made and he wanted them. And also, I believe the photo that was used as the cover of the rock and roll album was a photo that May Pang purchased at Beetlefest. Yes. And uh, eventually, uh, the uh, 
Beetlefest in New York moved to New Jersey. It was in Secaucus at the Crown Plaza for a while, and it's in Jersey City these days, uh, assuming it's not a pandemic situation, of course. And uh, they did move it back to New York for one year in 2014, possibly others, but in 2014 it was the 50th anniversary, and a butt-ton of people showed up for that, like more than <laughs> ever. And uh, the Chicago Area Fest, in which uh, Lisa and I have both attended many times, that started in 1977 at the Palmer House downtown Chicago, and then it moved to Rosemont, usually at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Once it was at the Westin in Rosemont, and apparently that was not a good year (laughs) from people (laughs) who've been there, who were at that one, told me. And uh, interestingly, the reason that it went from inside the cities to outside of the cities, uh, I've heard two different explanations for that. Uh, I think Mark Lapidos himself, don't quote me on this, I just think he said this. Uh, He said that basically being inside a city is too distracting because there's so much to do in a city that people are leaving the fest to go do other things. But having it kind of remotely kind of discouraged that. But another Mm. story that I heard secondhand from someone who's not directly connected to Beetlefest is that Mark moved the fest to satisfy the demands of many of the dealers who didn't want to haul all their stuff all the way into the city from an airport. They asked Lapidos to consider moving it closer to somewhere where there's an airport. Well, the Hyatt Regency O'Hare is just down the street from O'Hare Airport. And, of course, Secaucus is fairly close to Newark. Mark also had a fest in California for a long time. They were kind of alternating between the Bay Area and the L.A. area from year to year. Uh, They were also fests in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Houston, and Boston. In 1999, there was one in Orlando, And uh, that happened right after the Chicago Fest. And I remember that Mark was so stressed out during that time, having two fests so close to each other that he was literally hospitalized. Really? He had had to leave the Chicago Fest early and get himself to the ER, I think. I think it was 2008 they had one at the Mirage in Vegas because the Love Show had just opened, the Cirque du Soleil show. Yeah, and uh, those are the places it's been. Uh, There are certain features and events, uh, pretty similar, I guess, to any other fan conventions, because we've only, I think, been to maybe one other fan convention that wasn't Beatles. Uh, It's pretty typical. You have guest speakers, like people who knew the Beatles, people who wrote books about the Beatles, etc. They used to show all four of the Beatles feature-length movies and Magical Mystery Tour, like in the main ballroom of the hotel. What was really cool, Help, during the movie Help, there was a lot of audience participation. <laughs> yes. Did you ever attend a Help screening at Beetlefest, Mar- uh, Ferg? Why did I call you Mark? I'm sure I did. I don't remember it. What I do remember is the Let It Be one when Yoko showed up Yep, yep that was going to be my next point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. every, every time Yoko was on the screen, it happened in Jersey, it happened in Chicago. Yeah. I was talking to somebody who was at the Jersey Fest uh, in 1981 after John Lennon was murdered. And he said, out of respect, nobody booed Yoko, but the brief time that Linda was on screen, they booed her instead. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So, yeah. And we have, uh, Uh. we always met up with a bunch of friends of ours for the fest, and they would not, they're first generation fans, actually, and they did not want to watch Let It Be because they found it too depressing. So they'd leave the ballroom for Let It Be, and then they'd have some pizza. And when they were done with their pizza, they'd go back to the ballroom for the rooftop concert portion of the Let It Be movie. 
oh, which yeah. nobody hates. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see. I, as I mentioned earlier, there's an auction. There's always an auction at the fest. I think Saturday and Sunday at the fest, they do auctions. Uh, there's an art contest. There's a room where you can record yourself uh, doing karaoke, video, or audio. There's an art contest. Uh, marketplace yeah. where you can buy and sell anything, Beatles or, well, anything really. There are people who don't even have Beatles stuff in there. Yeah. There's a house band called Liverpool, and they perform every night of the fest, and they also perform with any musical guests who show up. On Saturdays, they have what they call the sound alike contest, which, from what I understand, started out in the early days actually as a real sound alike contest, but it kind of evolved into just a single or duo group performance like that didn't necessarily sound anything like the Beatles, but they still call, they still call it the sound alike contest. We haven't been to that in a long time, the sound alike contest at least, but when we were still going to the fest regularly, it was hosted by this guy, Martin Lewis. Uh, have you experienced him for oh, the, your reaction tells me you have. Yeah. He's an experience. Yes. And we talk about oh, this a God. lot, but what he called, what he was actually calling it himself actually made more sense because every time he would introduce a sound-alike performer, he would say, you know, for Ron Johnson of Jersey City, Beatle Opportunity knocks." <laughs> so why, why didn't they just call it Opportunity Knox? Uh... And on Sunday, there was the Battle of the Beatle Bands, which was basically a, a whole band gets up, they perform a Beatles song, and it was a contest. There's, I think, a little bit more nowadays. Uh, there's a video room, uh, or at least there used to be. I don't know if it's still there. It's basically what you think it is. It's a room. It's a room where you go in and you watch videos. And now they have Beatles yoga, which I think what? I think one of the Lapidos daughters does that. Oh, they, the daughters oh used to help out a lot at the fest. Now they're like a lot more involved. I think. How old are they now? They gotta be. They, I think they graduated from college recently. Oh my god. <laughs> Actually, they must have been older yeah. than that because they were like preteens when I started going in 1996. Yeah. yeah, they're definitely adults now. And I think they've taken on a lot of the programming and various work. They also have not just the Beatles yoga, but they have transcendental meditation now. Oh, that's which cool. I think it's pretty interesting and relevant. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what the fest is about. Uh, in 2002, something that I noticed and I think a lot of people noticed is that the cover of the program that they hand out for the fest, it actually said Beetlefest, the fest for Beatles fans, which to me sounded kind of redundant. Right. <laughs> but it turns out that they were actually in the process of renaming the fest to the fest for Beatles fans. We found out later that the reason for that was that Mark Lapidos had surrendered the trademark on the term Beetlefest over to Apple, the Beatles Corporation. Uh -oh. And ever since that happened, like we noticed like a lot of big changes. Like now, the only movie you're going to get to watch in the uh, ballroom is A Hard Day's Night. They oh. don't show any of the other movies at all. Oh. Yeah, because that's the only movie that the Beatles and Apple don't actually own. It's still under, well, United Artists doesn't exist anymore, right? Like, I don't the ownership, know. whoever owns United Artists, it's probably Sony because they own everything. <laughs> but yeah, the Beatles yeah. don't actually own the rights to that. So uh, they can still show that without the Apple police showing up and beating yeah. everybody well, up. 
That's not what Mark told me when I emailed him and said, well, what, what happened to the other movies? Because we they used to, there was no Yellow Submarine, there's no Magical Mystery Tour. And he responded and said, well, it's because we have so many great guests that speak in the ballroom that we just simply don't have time. <laughs> and of course, when I responded and said, well, then why not change up the movies? Why not show help one year or whatever? And yeah. no response. Yeah. <laughs> or why not show them in the video room? No response. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, people would rather see like a guy who played for five minutes on Paul McCartney's record in 1982 than... <laughs> Then have a nice audience participation viewing of Let It Be. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. And also they put in some new restrictions on some of the vendors. Like they can't, if I heard correctly, like vendors are not allowed to sell any of the same things that Lapidos himself, like his company sells. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because Beatles, well, pardon me, the Fest for Beatles fans <laughs> is the biggest Beatles memorabilia reseller, the biggest licensed memorabilia reseller. So yeah, they might have true. some kind of a thing with that. But from what I understand, this was not coming from Lapidos, but from kind of like uh, the grapevine, is that around 2002, Apple had a brand new team of lawyers take over and they basically screwed a lot of things up for, oh. for people who were enjoying a lot of things. In fact, they're <laughs> the ones who demanded that he surrender the trade mark yeah for what i understand lapidos could have fought that and won easily but he kind of took the high road and said i'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me right yeah good point so first thing i want to ask the both of you ferg since you're like coming in from all the way from delaware <laughs> i'll give you the courtesy first what i want to know is how did you first find out about Beetlefest and what made you start going I don't know how I found out about it. I think maybe my dad found out about it or we heard about it on maybe a radio station like NEW out of New York. Ah, uh, yeah. So I was 16. It was 86. And my dad said he would take us one day. I forget if it was Saturday or Sunday. But he took uh, me and my friends, Mark and Glenn, and <laughs> they, we we went in a, a little pickup truck with an open back. And the two of them oh, were in the back on the turnpike. <laughs> which, oh, God. <laughs> Well, once you get to up to around exit 11 or so, the traffic doesn't move at all anyway, so you'd be perfectly safe. You know, it, it was okay. I, maybe the traffic was not too bad back then, but it was, I mean, for me, it was great. I was so so much into the Beatles and would get even more so the next year when the CDs started coming out. Oh, yeah. And it was pretty early and it was just new, lots of new stuff. I don't think I had seen Magical Mystery Tour before then. Oh, really? Yeah. Just all the, the video room with all the bootleg videos I had never seen. Um, in the, the ballroom, they would show videos. You know, you couldn't go to YouTube back then. So they had like uh, George Harrison videos from 77 and 78. Oh, and yeah. All that kind of stuff that I'd never seen before. It was awesome. It was awesome. And just all the stuff in the, the sales room, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in all at once. That's why I kept going every year for a long time. Now, was that the Crown Plaza at the time? No, that was uh, at the Meadowlands Hilton. Oh, okay. I think it blew over in the Hurricane Sandy, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And Lisa, same question. What was the question? <laughs> I forgot. Uh, how did you first find out about the fest? What got you into going? You. Oh. <laughs> no, seriously, I live down at the shore where you never hear about anything. Uh, and I had no idea that Beetlefest was a thing that happened just about an hour away. Yeah. I had never heard of it. Granted, I wasn't immersed in Beatles fandom. I really didn't participate in any online forums or 
Lucky subscribe you. to any <laughs> fanzines. Well, I mean, I tried reading Wreck Music Beatles, <laughs> and that place is just... Ferg, do you know Wreck Music Beatles? Yeah, I was on there. Yeah. Fuck you, Merrick! <laughs> yeah, I mean, that place was just, you know, you you picture a great big room with, like, graffiti oh. on the walls and broken furniture and <laughs> fires, little fires and everything. I mean, that was just a terrible place to be. And I tried joining uh, the Maca L list, which is... I think mainly run by women, like a women's Paul McCartney forum. Mm -hmm. And I think I unsubscribed about 10 minutes later because it was just horrible. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I didn't really know like what was going on in the Beatle fan world. So I never heard of Beatlefest until I met Sean. Hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> so my first fest was 1998 when we were still having our long distance relationship. And I went, you know, I came out to Chicago to go to the fest with Sean. Oh, okay. For me, it was kind of weird because when I first found out about the fest, it was kind of accidentally because my brother subscribed to Rolling Stone and I would just page through the issues from time to time, see if there's anything about the Beatles or the monkeys or something. <laughs> and I was looking at the, the classified ads in the back, and there was this really tiny ad that just said something like, free Beatles catalog, call 1-800-BEATLES. I was like, okay. I know this was when I was either a freshman or a sophomore in high school, which would have been somewhere between fall of 88 and the spring of 1990. And the reason I know that is because I didn't want to call the number from home because I knew that there were some 800 numbers that would reroute you to a toll number. Oh, <laughs> And I didn't want to hear my dad yell, oh, who the hell called this number? <laughs> so I called from the pay phone at my school and I said, hey, I'd like the catalog. And whoever answered the phone, it was probably Mark Lapidos, actually. Yeah, back then. Yeah, yeah. he said, great. Uh, what's your address? And so I got the thing and it was turned out to be Beetlefest. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Oh man, I'm never going to be able to afford this thing though, man. You probably got to stay at the hotel if you want to be able to really do anything and yeah. admission and all that. You know, I, how am I ever going to afford that? <laughs> and, uh, when I was in college, I was talking to uh, someone who was uh, working at the college radio station with me and, uh, she was talking about how she was going to Beetlefest. I said, oh, really? How? I said, you're in college. How do you afford that? She said, it's really easy. You just go with a ton of people and you just split the expense. Mm. And a couple of my coworkers said the same thing. They're like, oh, we're going to Beetlefest. I said, how do you afford that? You work at the library. I know you don't <laughs> make any money. And they said the same thing. Oh, you just go with a whole bunch of people. You should join us sometime. <laughs> and these are like for like one to 1.5 generation fans we're talking about too. So there's like a big oh. age difference. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's not like it costs $1,000 a night to stay at the Hyatt. When you work at a library, it does. <laughs> it's not that expensive to go. Yeah, I know. But hey, that's why in 1996, kind of as a graduation present to myself, I said, okay, I'll join you for this year. So you knew about it for six years? Yeah. Wow. I knew about it all that time before I actually went. Huh. And I gave in. And, and I had so much fun. Yeah. And that was like right around the time when I was really getting seriously into the Beach Boys. And I was thinking, oh, God, are the Beach Boys my favorite band now? <laughs> and going to the fest, it was like, no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> Turns out I ended up going to the fest. In, well, they call it the Chicago Fest, but it's really in Rosemont, right by uh, O'Hare Airport. I've gone to everyone there between 1996 and 2008 inclusive, even when I lived in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And uh, we've been back to that like every now and then since we we stopped going every year because we didn't like how things were turning out. There were things missing and 
just a lot of changes well, we didn't like. Really, what killed it was the renovation of the hotel. Because oh, part that of too. part of the fun of going, even when we, you know, when we both lived in New Jersey, we would still make a summer trip out to Chicago, visit Sean's uh, family for a couple days, spend some time downtown, and go to Beetlefest. And the Hyatt Regency O'Hare is a really, really beautiful hotel, probably from like circa 1970. And it had a big indoor pool. It had several really good restaurants, beautiful rooms, and just a nice layout, like lots of room where people could have jam sessions, people could sit and have conversations, a whole huge ballroom wing where they had all the events plus rooms downstairs where they had things like the marketplace and autograph rooms. So it was like they could have all these events going on and it didn't still didn't feel like Beetlefest was on top of you because you still had plenty of room in the hotel. I think it was around 2008 or nine that they did this massive renovation they got rid of the pool and replaced it with a conference center. Uh. And the really great restaurant became this very hoity-toity, overpriced restaurant that was absolutely no fun. <laughs> and they just took some of the rooms that were really good for Beetlefest events, like the Forum. They took that, like they replaced the Forum with a sports bar. And oh. it was just like, it wasn't, a great place to stay anymore. And they also did a ridiculous thing where in the guest rooms, they put refrigerators in, but they were stocked with sodas and snacks and things like that. And even when you checked in, they told you if you even so much as touched something that was inside the fridge, you would get charged for it. (laughs) So it was like, it just didn't feel like a friendly, welcoming place to have a little trip in the summer. Hmm. So that kind of ruined it for us too that's true yeah how did i forget about that i don't know (laughs) that's why i'm here to remind you we've also been to the jersey fest uh we went in 99 uh just because we really wanted to go it's like oh we can't wait till august that was in march i think and yeah we didn't really care much for it in jersey it just the vibe wasn't right the hotel sucked It did. (laughs) Well, it's like I just said how the Hyatt was very roomy and had lots of different spaces for events. It felt like the Crown Plaza, everything was just crammed together. There Mm -hmm. was like, I mean, it was basically like being in New Jersey. You know, there's no room to move. There's too many people. (laughs) I mean, the only plus about the Crown Plaza, free parking. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You didn't have to pay for parking there. They had that nice big parking deck right there. That was nice. But aside from that, (laughs) yeah, we also went in 2002 because we felt we should in honor of George Harrison, who had just died a few months earlier. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, again, we didn't really have a good time. I don't know why, but we decided to go in 2005. We just, I think we just went for that one day, right? Was that the time we met up with David? Yes. My friend David. I think it was because uh, Mark Lewison was going to be there. that's right. And we didn't want to missed the chance to see him because we didn't want to just assume that he would be in Chicago as well. Yeah, because I don't think he was. So I think it was, we wanted to see Mark Lewison and somehow we hooked up with our friend David who lives in Connecticut 
and had never been to Beetlefest, but he was a Beatles fan from day one. Uh, we know him from the Beach Boys fan community, but he loves the Beatles as well. So he came out and met up with us for the day, and he had a blast. Beatles author Bruce Spizer, he's he always goes to these things. He delivers lectures. He usually has a book to pitch, and they're fantastic, too. And just five minutes into Bruce Spizer's talk, it's the first thing we went to, David turned to us and said, if this was the only thing that Beetlefest was, I feel I already got my money's worth. <laughs> I don't remember if it was that one or if it was the Chicago one that year, but we were looking through our pictures just to kind of jog our memories uh, to prepare for this episode. And one of the pictures was they had at the fest that year a big wall that had like smoking cessation information. It's like, hey, because it's <laughs> it, it was like, yeah, I, it, it just kind of punches you in the gut because, hey, that's probably what took George, you know? Yeah. Having said that, unless uh, either of you two need to add anything on to this, we can uh, move on to our next topic. Ooh. Okay. This time I'm going to start with uh, Lisa just to change things up. Ooh. Favorite <laughs> finds in the marketplace. What's one of your favorites? All right. The first one I'll mention, and this was something I never would have expected to have seen in the market marketplace, at, I almost said market fest at Beetle Place. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have expected to see this, but there was a woman there by the name of Laura Sotu, and she made counted cross stitch patterns oh. related to the Beatles. And I've been doing counted cross stitch since I was 13. My aunt taught me back in like 1985. So seeing that just blew my mind. I mean, she had patterns that she designed herself. She tried many times over the years to get them officially licensed. And as of yet, she still hasn't. But I mean, they're beautifully done patterns, very easy to follow, color coded, just absolutely ideal. She sold kits and also the individual just the paper patterns, which that's what I bought because I already have so many supplies, I don't need the kit. And I've made a number of them over the years. I have probably the most difficult one is she made, she did a pattern of the rubber sole cover Ooh. with all kinds of shading and detail and blended needle where you take two strands of two different colors and stitch with them together to create an effect. There's uh, the yellow submarine, the blue meanie, the Sergeant Pepper drumhead. Uh, you want me to uh, put some pictures of this for the world to see? Sure. And something I'm really proud of, she just had the Beatles logo. And I made that kind of taking that and adding my own design to it, putting the Union Jack behind it. So oh, that's, cool. that's something I'm very proud of. I only just got that. I made that years ago, but I only just got it framed maybe last year. That was such a great find. I think I still have a couple patterns that I've never stitched because every year I would buy several things from her. Like she got to know my face after a while. And I even would send her pictures when I was finished because she, she loved sharing um, her customers work. She also made a lot of uh, Beatles jewelry that I bought a couple things like Beatles logo earrings, little yellow submarine earrings, Lots of cool stuff. And she also has plenty of other designs of her own that she still sells, I believe, on eBay nowadays. But very cool, really nice person. So that was always something I looked forward to. She always greeted us with a hug, too. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. How about you, Ferg? It's hard to remember specific things because it's been so long since I've been. But the one thing I remember was the um, Unsurpassed Masters 
uh, CDs. Oh. I think I bought three of them at, when I first saw them at Beetle Fest. So of course, it was like 60 or 80 bucks or 90 bucks or something like that. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I got all this money from. <laughs> but I remember hearing about them. Uh, I think it was the first, it must have been 90 or 91 when they first came yep. out, I think. Yep. But I mean, I had never heard anything like that before. I had a couple of vinyl bootlegs that I got there, but they were not, it wasn't as much stuff as the Unsurpassed Masters. It was just amazing listening to those. Yep. And I still give them a listen every now and then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. They're fun to go back to. Well, it's funny you should mention this as uh, one of your favorite marketplace finds because it kind of leads me into one of mine. It was kind of a year in the making. I'm going to say that it was my haul of bootleg CDs in 1997, but it began in 1996 when I realized, holy crap, there are bootlegs all over the place. And I was really getting into collecting those things. Yep. And so I grabbed a few from there. And and, uh, I think I told this story once before, but one of the dealers, it was on Sunday... She had a whole ton of yellow dog bootlegs and mm. uh, the yellow dog offshoots that she was asking 15 bucks a pop for, which Whoa. was dirt cheap for that. Yes. I was like, holy crap. And these were not, this was before CD burners were a thing too. So yes. these were like factory made. I think I only bought one of them or, or I don't know why I only bought one of them <laughs> from her. But while I was talking with her about, you know, yellow dog and all this, I'm trying to acquire all these yellow dog discs. I said, by the way, how is it that you're able to sell this stuff right out in the open and you're not getting busted or anything. She said, I'm a girl. I don't know anything. <laughs> Someone just gave me these CDs and said they're really cool. I'm just a stupid girl. I was like, okay, I, I, I see. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so what I did was knowing that I could get bootleg CDs at Beetlefest every now and then for the next year. I would just toss a $20 bill into a box in a junk drawer or something. <laughs> oh. And by the time the 97 Fest happened, I had 300 bucks in that box. Wow. $300. I was like, holy cow. <laughs> so yeah, I went, I went, I just went crazy. This was right around the time the Midnight Beat label started, which I think was the original Yellow Dog under a new name. And they had just put out the complete Hollywood Bowl concerts, like all three concerts and some a press conference. Mm. And they sounded fantastic. Yeah. At least for then. I mean, now, like if you listen to the latest version of the Hollywood Bowl concerts that the Beatles themselves put out, it sounds a lot better. But at least for then, it was amazing. There was a a White Album. uh, It was a title called Gone Tomorrow, Here Today. And it had... uh, this really good mono mix of Dear Prudence that I just loved. And man, I was just going crazy buying bootlegs that year. <laughs> I was just, I was, oh, it was so nice hearing pristine quality yeah. recordings of things that shouldn't be pristine quality that were better than the commercial discs that were right. out at the time. <laughs> I'm going to go back to uh, the uh, the Lisa here. Um, do you have another favorite Marketplace find? Probably my Beatles purse. Now, I am not a purse person. I never owned or desired to own any kind of designer purse. I think people who spend several hundred dollars on something with a name are ridiculous. Mm. Uh, Usually for a purse, I go one of two ways, either like a little backpack style bag that I can really put, you know, not, not a huge backpack, but just like a little mini backpack that I can carry a lot of stuff in or a little tiny crossbody, like if I'm wearing something that doesn't have pockets, just something where I can put my phone and keys and maybe a few other little things in. So I'm not a big on purses, but this one, 
it's like if I'm going to be dressy for any reason and the backpack or the tiny purse won't do, this is what I use. It's a little black pocketbook that's got a photo, like a 1964 era photo screened on both sides with one side that has a, a few little rhinestone embellishments on it. It's not any kind of name. I know there are other people who have it, so it's been mass-produced to some extent, but there's no brand name or anything inside of it, so I don't know if it's just somebody who made it on their own and was able to make a lot of them. I think it cost probably no more than 30 bucks. I got that probably close to 20 years ago, and it's my go-to purse, and I love it, and I get a lot of compliments on it, and it's just great. So That's it's, awesome. Again, another thing I didn't really expect to find, and it wasn't at the Beetlefest table. <laughs> so, haha to you, Mark Lapidos. Because, yeah, I never saw them sell a Beatles purse. Oh, good grief. Hey, oh, one thing I do have to add to that. One person you got complimented on, or who complimented you on that, we were leaving the Beacon Theater in November of 2006 after a Brian Wilson show. There's a guy walked by who said, hey, I love that purse. Hey, here's a button from the band I'm in. And it said Fab Foe, F-A-U-X, oh, which yeah. is a well-known oh, yeah. Beatles oh, cover band. Yeah. And after he left, I realized that was Will Lee oh. from the CBS Orchestra. <laughs> yeah, from David Letterman's band. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa. And I still have that button somewhere. It's got little little pair of Beatle boots in there, you know, Fab Foe name. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, how about you for give another favorite uh, purchase? It must have been on uh, Rec Music Beatles where I found out that in the late 80s when they were repressing the American albums that some of them were repressed mistakenly in mono. Oh, really? So Yeah. So I went to, uh, it was Beatles 6 for certain. That's the one I heard about, but apparently there's other ones. So I went to my local record store and actually bought one. I think it had the rainbow label on it, the black hmm. rainbow. And uh, it was indeed mono. So I figured, well, I don't have too many of the mono versions of the album. So I decided that one year I was going to go to Beetlefest and buy all of them. <laughs> hmm. And this was early enough where I think the most expensive one was Revolver and it was eight bucks and they were all pretty, wow, in pretty good shape. So I was able to get uh, almost all of the mono albums. Now, were they really truly mono, like the actual mono mixes or were they the stereo mixes just folded down in a mono? No, they were, it was definitely the mono mixes. It was wow. like, it was an old stamper or something that they pulled out by mistake. Oh, wow. Yeah, there were, a, I don't remember if there was any others besides Beatles 6. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, I guess uh, I since you're talking about records, I, my next one should be about records too. See, we have, Ferg and I have themes going on here. <laughs> It's not so much that the find itself is necessarily favorites, but the memory of it. Mm -hmm. A friend of ours uh, that we met literally the day before I moved to New Jersey in 1998, our friend Dan, he runs a, an art gallery in downtown Chicago, and uh, we knew him from online Beach Boys forums, and we met him in person the day before I moved to New Jersey. And when we'd come back out for Beetlefest, he would join us. He'd meet up with us and uh, borrow somebody's wristband so he could get in and everything. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, one year when he was with us, we were browsing through the records in the marketplace, and we found this weird Taiwanese Beach Boys compilation on red vinyl. <laughs> and it had lyrics included. It had a lyric sheet. 
that was obviously transcribed by ear by someone who didn't really have a fluent grasp of English. <laughs> and we were looking at these lyrics and we were like in hysterics. In fact, let me see. Let me uh, do a quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dan was actually reading them out loud. Yeah, the, we were record, think, audio recording yeah, him reading them. That was just a great moment that because there was one vendor that had not just Beatles, but they brought tons of other records, all like basically things that would be of interest of people at Beatle Fest. So they yeah. had Rolling Stones records, Monkeys, Beach Boys, Mamas and the Papas, like all kinds of just general 60s pop and of course if there was a guest like say if peter and gordon were a guest they made sure they had some peter and gordon records and that kind of thing and it was always fun to look through their bins because you never knew what you were going to find and so i think sean had pulled up uh those wonderful lyrics (laughs) yeah let me see if you can guess what beach boys song this is a pretty famous one too has these lyrics had a weak lean of gas. Well, I sure could fly. I played it cool this morning just to be on the sky. What? <laughs> <laughs> Should I tell him what's on there? Had a weak lean of gas. Well, I sure could fly. I played it cool this morning just to be on the sky. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Where did they get that yeah. from? <laughs> that is dance, dance, dance. That, well, they got cow. it from not knowing English very well <laughs> and so. trying to transcribe a Beach Boys song <laughs> where they didn't always enunciate things clearly on Beach Boys songs. Wow. Because yeah. yeah. there are some songs, Sean knows, there are some songs that it took me years to figure out the correct lyrics. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And the dealer was giving us a dirty look, too. So I felt bad. And like a year or two later, when we went back, when we went back I actually bought it from him. Yeah, it was only like six bucks, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, wasn't. it wasn't expensive, but it's like, hey, it's it was... another colored vinyl in my collection. Back to you, the lovely Lisa. Do you have another favorite marketplace find? Yeah, I mean, I had made a little list. I made a little list for all the things that we're discussing. So it's kind of hard to just limit to three, but I guess I'll say there was one vendor that had handmade stained glass. I mean, you know, you guys have themes with records. My theme is artsy stuff, handmade stuff. And I love stained glass. I have my whole life and I have a lot of respect for people who make it. Uh, My grandmother's neighbor always made pieces for me when I was a little kid. Uh, That was his retirement hobby. So I've always loved it. And there was a vendor that had various beetle related stained glass pieces. Like uh, I remember they had a little lamp that was where the shade was the four cartoon characters from the the Saturday morning cartoon. And uh, they had night lights and a whole bunch of different things. But I bought two sun catchers that are still, you know, they're in our living, one of our living room windows. One is the Yellow Submarine and the other is uh, Glovey from Yellow Submarine. And they're just beautifully made. And that was another real find that I cherish. That's awesome. How about you, Ferg? Do you have a third favorite? Um, Yes. I think my favorite photo of John Lennon is the Richard Avedon one that's on the Love Songs cover. Oh, That was yeah. my first Beatles album. I don't know what, what it is about that picture, but I really love it. And I wanted to find a poster of it. So I, I went to Beetlefest because that's the only place I knew where yeah, I right. posters of the Beatles, the specific pictures. And I did find one. And um, it's just a, a white poster with the picture in the middle. And it says John Lennon, 1940, 1980 on the bottom. 
And my wife, Sarah, had it framed for me, and it's hanging in our living room. And oh, awesome. for some reason, my my nephew, uh, how old is he now? Nine. He is obsessed with the poster. Hmm. And whenever we Skype with them, he always needs to see the poster. But it's my favorite picture, and it's one of those pictures where he's looking at you wherever you are in the room. Because <laughs> oh, he's looking straight at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I just find myself looking at it, you know, just staring at it. Uh, I don't know why, but... I'm glad I found it, so and glad that Sarah framed it for me. Oh yeah. yeah. All right, so here we don't have a theme here because okay. mine, <laughs> my third favorite marketplace find. This actually happens several times. It's not so. I don't know if I'd call it a find, but it's my favorite. One of my favorite purchases. Anytime a new Bruce Spicer book came out, because he was always there selling them. Uh, yeah. The first year I saw him, I didn't buy his VJ book. I actually ended up getting that for a, a, a with a gift card I got for Christmas. But uh, oh, lucky you. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. T- tell me about it. Uh, let's see. That. I got the Capital books that came out. I got the uh, the Solo books. Uh, they're so. These are like hardcover coffee table books, and they're they're like fifty bucks a pop, but they are so worth it. They are yes. just such amazing information, and kind of became tradition. I'd go in the marketplace, and there's Bruce Spicer's table. I'd just walk up to him, and I'd say, "One, please." And he always, re- he remembered us every year. So he did, I don't think he ever knew our names, but he he remembered us. He's like, oh, nice to see you again. Yeah. He was, he's really nice. Yeah. But yeah, if you're, if you like the Beatles at all and you have not looked at a Bruce Spicer book, you have to, uh, it's beetle.net is the URL. I'll put that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Yep. And he still puts out books pretty, like every time there's a new uh, Beatles super deluxe edition, he has a tie-in book for it. Yep. And I think we're behind on those. Yeah. I, th- I think we missed one or two, but uh, hopefully it's still available. But um, moving up to another favorite thing. Ferg, I'm going to start with you again uh, this time. Uh, okay. Since I started with Lisa last time. Do you have a favorite guest who appeared at a fest? Yeah, I think my favorite uh, out of everyone was probably Neil Innes. Oh. And I think he was at the last one I was I went to in 1996. And, you know, he played songs from the Ruddles. This was before the second one came out. And yeah. he did all the uh, whatever they did. But he was he was hilarious. And I just love him from the Ruddles. That's how I found out about him. I got a couple of his solo records. Then I found out he was involved with Python, which I didn't know. And he's really funny. He's very, very missed. Passed away. Yes. Was it this year or last year? I can't remember. Um, it was the end of last. I think it was December 30th of last oh, year. Okay. 2019. Yeah, he, he was there. He was playing solo played some Bonzo stuff, played some Ruddle stuff. And he was at the side of the stage getting ready to go on. So I just figured, well, <laughs> I'm a brash in my early 20s. So I just walked up to him with my Ruddles album and asked him to sign it. And then all these other people started gathering around. <laughs> <laughs> so he was late getting on stage, but he was really good. And that year, uh, Archaeology came out, I think, later that year or the next year. It was 96, yeah. Yeah, he played um, Shangri-La there, so of course, uh, oh. what's his what's his name had to sing along with him. But uh, I think they were pretty good friends, actually. Um, Martin Lewis. Martin Lewis, yeah. <laughs> I tried yeah, to they, block him yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, Martin Lewis is listed as the executive producer on Archaeology, I think. Yeah, but I I loved. I was so happy that I got to see him. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely Neil. Uh, one of my favorite Neil memories was, I mean, I know he had done this at an earlier appearance, but the last time we went to Beetlefest, which I think was 2017, was it? When we went yeah, to the I Chicago think Fest? so. To either 2017 or 2018, we went to the, the fest out here. And 
I got video of this too, where somebody had asked him to perform uh, the Brave Sir Robin song from Holy Grail, which of <laughs> course he did. And everybody went crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. We have uh, one of our, another friend from, we have a lot of friends in the Beach Boys fan community, <laughs> another Beach Boys friend. She lives in Maryland, and she would come out with several friends whenever Neil was at the Chicago Beatle Fest. And through the Neil in his fandom, they got to know him personally. Like they would always meet up with him for dinner and hang out with him. We called them the in his crowd. <laughs> but yeah, that was so it was, it was always nice when Neil was going to be at the Chicago Beatle Fest because we knew we'd get to see Christine, who we normally only saw at Brian Wilson shows. All right. Well, I got yeah. one to trump both of you. The Ruddles. <laughs> oh, the, when the three, three of them, them were yeah, there? Yeah, Dirk McQuickly did not show up for that. But, uh, no. <laughs> but yeah, the, in 97, because of archaeology, they, they were there. Uh, they had a press conference in one of the rooms on uh, Saturday night where people were just asking them questions, sometimes in character, sometimes out of character. I asked Barry whatever <laughs> became of his, uh, how he literally ended up being two hairdressers after the Ruddles. <laughs> and he said something about how there was a customer who he had who just suddenly went crazy and he said it scarred me emotionally and physically <laughs> and uh somebody else asked hey i got a question for neil ennis who's harder to, no no it was a question for ricky Fata for ricky fatar actually he said who's harder to work with neil ennis or mike love and he oh, said geez. at bonnie rate <laughs> because as we all know, Ricky Fatar was in the Beach Boys for several years in the early 70s. Yeah, and that was also the first time I actually met a Beach Boy, too, because I, I got his autograph. I found a 10-inch vinyl of the Shangri-La EP in the marketplace, oh, there you and go. I was thrilled with that. Because it's like, oh my god, my first 10-inch vinyl, and uh, they all autographed it for me, and I can't find the damn thing. Because when Neil died, I was going to post a picture of that on, on the social media, and I can't find it. Oh, no. I mean, I have other things autographed by, by Neil, but this was autographed by all three of them. Oh. And uh, they did a concert, of course, on Saturday nights. Uh, oh, yeah, what was cool is I went back to the room just to put some stuff I bought down and just go back to the, the ballroom. And on the way to the hotel elevators, the, the Ruddles and I crossed paths. They said, hey, good question. That was cool. They remembered me. Yay. And uh, they performed a concert that night. It was so cool. So cool. They did uh, some of their classics. Of course, they did Cheese and Onions. You can't have yeah. any Ruddles perform without doing Cheese and Onions. And we saw Neil do that right. on his own, too, right? Oh, yeah. I love the picture that you have of Ricky Fatar when you saw yes. him in the restaurant the morning you were checking out. And why don't you, yeah. why don't you talk about the significance of that photo? Yeah, I was uh, walking out on the way out of the hotel, and I see Ricky Fatar sitting at the table, just having breakfast or something. And just really quickly, I said, hey, Ricky, can I get a picture of you? And he said, okay, yeah, sure. And I was about to snap the picture, and he said, hold it. And then he held up the menu, which had a picture of three teacups on it. <laughs> and he said, okay, now take the picture. Because, <laughs> you know, tea <laughs> and biscuits. <laughs> And we're not going to explain that for people who don't know what that means. Yeah, if you don't know what that means, watch the Ruddles. All you need is cash now. Yes. Just yes, now. Just it. do it. Just don't argue. Yeah, it's under an hour and it's a great watch. Yeah. Oh, and I also should note that you have seen Eric Idle in person. I have seen Eric so Idle in person, just not with the rest of the Ruddles. 
Yeah, because a couple of years ago, there was a, a bookstore that's right outside the Chicago area, but has a lot of great connections, and they get a lot of author events. And they were on Eric Idle's speaking tour to promote the memoir that he put out. Oh, so yeah, we got, that's you know, right. And I mean, normally, these events are just an author talk and autograph signing at the store. But for this, they actually reserved uh, an auditorium at a local college. So that was so he was amazing he was so funny and the book is fantastic too that is a good yeah. book and i'm not even a fan our friend robin has can one up that though because she actually met eric idol so technically she has now met all four of the ruddles she was at jfk airport one day she was at baggage claim she picked up her suitcase she looked up and eric idol was standing next to her oh nice and she's like oh my god oh my god oh and he's like could you please keep it down i don't want to attract attention <laughs> So, okay, fine, but I just want to say thank you for giving me 20 years of laughter. And yeah. so, anyway, that was that. Was that. Um, let's go back to uh, Ferg. I think you were first on mm. this little go around. Do you have another favorite guest? I chose Alf Bicknell. Um, ah, okay. I, I don't, uh, Sarah and I saw him, I think, starting in 91 or so. And I'm not really sure. I guess he was the driver for a while. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of a, a helper. I just loved his stories. He was a big guy, looked kind of like Santa Claus, is very friendly. <laughs> and uh, we, I mean, still to this day, um, he tells us, he, well, he passed away a few years ago, but he always told a story about uh, he was at home and, and uh, John Lennon was painting a room red or something. And John Lennon called him up and asked him what he was doing. And uh, Alf says, well, I guess I'm coming around to see you. And then he talked about the uh, the banjo falling off the back of the car. <laughs> oh boy! I want to. I'm trying to think. I think that might have been the first guest I ever saw. I really? walked in in the middle of his speech. I think it. Was, I know it was somebody who drove them. I want to say it was Alf. Yeah, he was just a really sweet guy. He was very nice, and yeah, his stories were hilarious. Whomever it was that I saw was seems to match that description. Yeah. There's a story about the Beatles buying him a brand new car and then ruining it by get it, by walking into a lake and then getting in the car. Sound familiar? Oh, no, it doesn't. Like I said, okay. it's been a while. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, Alpha's, Alpha's good. Rest in peace, Alf. He had a book, I think. He, oh, he probably did all the guests. Yeah, everybody has a book at Beetlefest. <laughs> yeah. or a Especially CD. now. Unless you're Lawrence Juber, then you have about 8,000 CDs of Beatles covers. Right. <laughs> yep. We can say that all we want about Lawrence Juber, but I got to tell you, there was one time, I think it was in 90, yeah, it was 96, I walked into what I thought was the sound alikes, and I see this guy playing Martha My Dear solo on an acoustic guitar. Oh, it was yeah. amazing. It was. It turned out it was Lawrence Juber. Yep. So, yeah, I was like, good Lord, this guy is something. And Very he good. used to sit in on some of the, the late night jam sessions, too. Like, oh, he yeah. would just show up with his guitar and sit down and play with really? play along with everybody oh, else. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I have to tell this story because I embarrassed it, like, myself and a lot of other people. Because Lawrence Juber is married to Sherwood oh, Schwartz's daughter. Oh, my God, daughter. you are not yes. going to tell this story. This, this is so embarrassing. And, uh, <laughs> she was there with him one year, like, at a jam session one year. She just kind of walked by. And she played Greg Brady's girlfriend, Rachel, oh, on a right. couple of episodes. She looked exactly the freaking same. <laughs> and I was like, it's Rachel. <laughs> oh, my God. I, like, walked away from you. Yeah. Oh, just no, 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 Yeah, you were, no, like, no, no longer no. married to me at that point. <laughs> but good grief. I got to mention Mark Hudson. Oh, yeah. At the time when we first saw him, he was currently Ringo's producer. 
I mean, I really enjoyed him, first of all, for being not somebody who spent five minutes with the Beatles in 1966 and wrote a book about it and everything like that. Or like the many people who had been in Wings, because <laughs> every album had a different lineup. This was somebody who was currently working with a Beatle and who had had his own career in pop music, had his own credentials. Ferg, did you ever see Mark Hudson at Beatlefest? Yes. I mean, so you know, this guy can tell a story. Yeah, he's hilarious. I mean, his too. stories were absolutely hysterical. Yeah. I still remember different ones that he told and the way he, like, he always dressed in brightly colored suits or he'd have his beard dyed three different yes. colors. <laughs> I mean, he's a total character. Yeah. Some of the stories he told, like, there was one long, long story about his crush on Joni Mitchell. He described how she was this cool 70s chick. And this was when he was in the Hudson Brothers. So we're like mid 70s. Right. I think they were both on a show together. He says, here I am wearing this orange polyester suit. I look like a big gay <laughs> pumpkin. <laughs> there was a story of him. Um, he had dinner with Yoko Ono. And, and, and I mean, Sean Lennon. Together. And Sean Lennon. And Mark was a dyed in the wool John Lennon fan. So he's talking about the yokester, like he's calling <laughs> her the yokester, and how they're having this great conversation. So he's saying, you know, in his mind, he says, yeah, I'm going to be moving into the Dakota next week. Oh, and, and Yoko says to him, come closer. And so, you know, and then she says, come closer. I have and, something to tell you. Yeah, I have something to tell you. And he's thinking she's going to, you know, tell him that, you know, she's madly in love with him or something. She says, you have rice in your beard. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just just the man could tell the hell out of a story. And it was always, I mean, when we went a couple years ago, he was there. And I even, you know, went up to him afterwards when he was at an autograph table. I'm like, I don't need you to sign a thing for me. I just want to say thank you for telling these stories yeah. all these years because you are a hoot. <laughs> yeah, that turned out to be his last appearance, too, because he announced that he wasn't going to be ma making any more appearances at fan conventions and stuff. Because he's like, it was right at, shortly after like this massive celebrity death thing of 2016. Oh. So he said... All my friends are dying. I need to spend time with my friends and family. Yeah. You tell this one because you tell it better than I do. The Christmas card. Oh, yeah. Mark and Ringo were recording something together. I don't remember what it was or if he said what it was. And Mark was laying down his background vocals. And Ringo kept stopping the tape. He said, stop sounding like Lennon. <laughs> and he's like, I can't help it. And that's my natural voice. I just naturally sound like John Lennon. And he kept interrupting the tape. Stop sounding like Lennon, you bastard. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and it just got to the point where like Ringo's like, okay, let's just call it a day. We'll do this again tomorrow. See if we can get a better take. And Mark says, you know, I'm so mad about this. I can't help it. It's not my fault. It's my voice. And he's walking back to his apartment and he passes this antique store and he sees a picture of John Lennon in the window that he never saw before. Wow. So he went in and he bought the picture. And when he went home, he wrote a little cartoon dialogue bubble on it that said, let him sound like me, you midget bastard. <laughs> so he goes back to the studio the next day. He gets there early and puts it on Ringo's music stand in the studio. Ringo arrives and Mark's kind of like, okay, should I be updating my resume now and sending <laughs> yeah, it out? Really? So am I about to get fired? <laughs> and he hears a voice coming from the studio. Mark, get in here. 
And so he goes in and there's Ringo just kind of standing there staring at this picture. And he says, Mark, how did you know? He's like, huh? How did you know? I've never told this to anybody before, but every year right up to the end, I would get Christmas cards from John that would say, happy Christmas, you midget bastard. <laughs> oh my God. And he said, Ringo started welling up and he just said, give me a hug, you bastard. Oh my God. Yeah, he, he talked about how Ringo had several levels of bastard, like everywhere from friendly to really pissed off. Like, yeah. You know, the tone of voice kind of told you what level of bastard you were at. <laughs> All right, so I guess it's my turn to talk about a favorite guest. So let me see. What favorite guest? Uh, all right, this is going to be weird because I real I honestly can't remember a darn thing in terms of actual content that was said when he spoke, but Victor Spinetti. <gasps> yes. Oh, my God. He was amazing. Uh, I just remember when he was introduced, when he took the microphone, before he even got into his thing, he just went into this, like, 10-minute, like, happy rant about how wonderful it is to get together and all, and you know, there's you know, peace and love and harmony and everything. And then all of a sudden he's like, wait, what did somebody ask me something or something? Am I supposed to say something? <laughs> but it, yeah, he just really just got into it before he could even be asked a thing. And I just remember one thing that was pretty interesting. This was around, I don't remember what year this was, but when they turned the floor over to the audience to ask him questions, some girl got up and said, uh, Victor, I'm a bisexual Beatles fan. And he said, so am I. <laughs> and, and he said, is it really necessary that we have to label ourselves like that? I mean, doesn't it just matter that we're Beatles fans? Does it matter that we're bisexual or whatever about uh, or whatever it was? And this was like probably right around the time it started to not be this major shocking thing to tell people you weren't heterosexual. Yeah. So it was Kind of a significant moment, I yeah, think. It's kind of brave of him to do that, especially if it was late 90s, early 2000s. It was still a big stigma for that stuff. This would have been like early 2000s, I yeah. think. That's awesome. I guess the best way to describe him is you just wanted to run up to the stage and give him a big hug. Yeah. Just how he came across, the things that he said. And it, I was just so happy to that we had that opportunity. Yep. Yeah. I love the story he told about um, when he was sick. I forget which movie said it was oh, on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> George Harrison, I've come to plump your pillows. <laughs> I remember that now. You remember what Paul said to him? No, I don't. He opened the door into Victor's room and said, is it catchy? Oh, that's right. <laughs> he said, yeah. He's like, okay. And then he closed the door and he's like, I never saw him again after that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ferg, do you have another favorite uh. guest? I wanted to pick Mark Lewison, but I could not remember if I saw him or not. I tried to find, because I can't find my programs. I don't know what I did with them, unfortunately. Uh, I hope I didn't get rid of them. But um, I was going when he put out the recording sessions book, so I assume oh, he wow. was there. That was the first Beatles book I ever owned. I got it yeah. for Christmas. That's a hell of a first Beatles book. To yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to go with Tony Sheridan. Oh, you saw Tony Sheridan. He was, uh, well, I, you wouldn't know it by looking at him because he didn't look at all what he looked like back in the in the oh, 60s. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you had like a big beard and really long hair. Yeah. But yeah. man, his stage presence, he just blew everybody off the stage. His, I forget what kind of guitar he had, uh, but man, the, the tone on that thing was absolutely amazing. I think he was drunk most of the time he was there. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy could play. And still sing really, really well. And I remember going up to the room, being at the, uh, in the elevator with some, well, kids. I mean, I was a kid too, but 
they were a lot younger. They were kind of making fun of him. It's like, that guy has been around the block, man. That guy has seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and he played with the Beatles, for God's sake. So what do you, you're in an elevator. In <laughs> the, the Raper convention. Yeah. <laughs> he was, I was so happy to see him, though. He was, I, I wasn't expecting much because I don't think at that point I knew that he played guitar on, the, on those uh, recordings. I only recently learned that myself. Yeah. So I wasn't expecting much, but yeah, he was, he was amazing. He was really good. Um, and how about you, dear? You mentioned Bruce Spizer earlier as somebody you purchase things from. I wanted to give him a shout out as a guest because, uh, as I think you mentioned, he would talk at Beetlefest every year, you know, definitely to promote his current book, but also some of the books in the past, just because, you know, as he freely admitted, he wanted to sell these books. Yes. Well, yeah. And for those who don't know who Bruce Spizer is, again, you need to educate yourself and get a hold of his books. But he's an attorney from New Orleans, a tax attorney. So it's not like he has any connections to the entertainment industry. Uh, he's been a Beatles fan since day one. And through kind of a interesting twisty turny path, got into doing intensive research about various factions of the Beatles history that had never really been written about. And probably at first thought, okay, this is going to appeal to maybe 15 fans. But it turned out that his books were so well researched and well written, that even people at Capitol Records have copies of his books, like his books have become tremendous reference material and resources, where he talks about different releases, variations in album covers and labels, and why things are the way they are. Like the first story he told was about the whole history with VJ Records and the other associated, well, later on, he talked about the other things like, why was She Loves You put out on, was it Swan? Swan, yeah. And, you know, why, what is Tolly? Where did that label come from? Like all these weird little random releases of Beatles material before Capital took over everything. The talks that he put together, he always had a, a slideshow that would be up on the big screen of various, you know, to go along with things that he talked about. And sometimes he even would have a few little props. I mean, nothing nothing gimmicky or cartoony, just kind of things to go along with what he was talking about, like, you know, a green apple or something like that. <laughs> or he'd wear a beetle wig. And well, especially when he gave uh, his talk about the butcher cover, he actually wore a white lab coat, a black <laughs> turtleneck, and a beetle wig. <laughs> and, but his talks were always very entertaining and very informative and did an excellent job of promoting his books and yep. uh, so that he wouldn't have to take them all back to New Orleans right. with him. <laughs> but uh, no, I always, I mean, that was always something I really appreciated, even though I didn't personally care about all these label variations his talks were so interesting that it was, you always got something out of it. Some of his talks I saw several times, but he was always a must-see on our Beetlefest schedule. As for me, um, I do not know how to properly pronounce the last name because, well, I'm not German. Ooh. Astrid Kircher. Yeah. Kircher. Astrid. Let's just call her Astrid. Kircher. <laughs> yes. It's Kircher who was among the Beatles' friends in Hamburg, Germany, back when they were in the leather jackets and cowboy boots phase of their career, and uh, the fiancé of John Lennon's best friend, Stuart Sutcliffe. 
she was another one of these people you just wanted to run up to the stage and give her a big hug. Yeah. She was just an absolute sweetheart. And she had some great stories to tell. Not necessarily a story, but I remember uh, during the Q&A session once, somebody asked her, uh, what did Stuart smell like? <laughs> and she thought about it for a second and she said, I would have to say he smelled like a garbage dump. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and then she said, well, okay, maybe not necessarily a garbage dump, but things you would find at a garbage dump. But because he was always kind of looking for things to make art out of. Mm. Like he would find a glass bottle or something and suddenly it became art in his mind. And uh, there was a story she was telling once about how this was in 1997. I think 97 was the best fest I've ever been to, partly because of the Ruddles, partly because of Astrid. <laughs> but she was telling a story about how she had recently been homesick with the flu and George Harrison came over to have some tea with her and made her feel better. And it's like, aw. Oh. And then there was the time, there was a time, I forgot what year it was, that she came back. This was after Stuart Sutcliffe had died and everything, and the Beatles were starting to kind of get a little bit of uh, a boost in their careers. Things were starting to look up for them. And they were talking to Astrid, and George said, we're going to be bigger than the shadows. <laughs> and just the way that she quoted John Lennon's response to that, it was just priceless. She said, what do you mean the f***ing shadows? We're going to be bigger than Elvis. <laughs> Just the way she said that, with a kind of a combination hybrid British-German accent. <laughs> Something I'm really happy that I have. During my bootleg frenzy of 1997, I bought a two-CD compilation of recordings that the Beatles had made at Paul McCartney's father's basement mm. in 1960. Just these really raw recordings just made on a home tape player. All the artwork that was included on the sleeve and the uh, slipcase were photographs made by Astrid. Astrid was a photographer. She took all kinds of pictures of the Beatles back then, and she autographed that for me. Nice. And I'm glad that I have that. You know, she just died not too long ago. Yeah, you're losing a lot of people. Yeah. I was just so happy that that she was there and thrilled when she came back that, that other year. I, think, I want to say it was 2001 when she was back. Something I just want to mention before we move on to our next topic. We've talked about a little bit about Martin Lewis, who was the MC for the New Jersey Fests and involved with the Chicago Fest. But I got to give a shout out to the host of the Chicago Fest pretty much for almost the entire time that we've had a Chicago Fest is... Terry Hemmert. She's a DJ at the radio station WXRT here in Chicago, and kind of a rarity in that she has worked for the same station for pretty much her entire radio career since like 1972 or 73. She's a Beatles fan from day one, John fan, and she went to the first Beatle Fest in 1977 and had an absolute blast, just went as a guest. And I guess she somehow hooked up with Mark Lapidos and said, hey, can I work with the fest next year or be an MC or whatever? And so she's done that ever since. The great thing about her is having been in radio and having met so many people over the years and doing the work that she does, there is not a thing about her that is jaded. She is as fangirly as you could ever imagine. It's just great to see her. She's a lot of fun and very sweet. 
and she kind of treats Beetlefest like it's camp. Like she'll on Saturday morning, she'll say, good morning, campers. And everybody yells back, good morning, Ranger Terry. And she'll say, like on, on Saturday morning, she said, okay, who hasn't been to bed yet? And then Sunday morning, she'll say, okay, who ran out of money? <laughs> and I mean, one of my favorite Terry moments was during one of the uh, the big auctions that they have, you know, to benefit uh the coalition to stop gun violence. And this may have been a year that Astrid was a guest. One of the things they were auctioning off was an eight by 10 of Astrid's photo of John Lennon from circa 1961 or 62. So Terry was one of the MCs of the auction. And she sees the picture. She said, is that an Astrid? And Mark Lapidus was like, yes, it is. She jumps off the stage to join in the bidding. (laughs) And she won it. Wow. (laughs) She's like, I'm sorry, I got to have this. And I think it went for something like $650. (laughs) But I wish she could also go out to Jersey and and emcee that fest so the people out there can experience her. But she's just really fun and really cool and she's an excellent interviewer like when she interviewed astrid that was 99 not 2001 i just remembered yeah it was 99 because that was the year i started to like her yeah the first year we went like she was kind of annoying i don't know what changed my mind about her i didn't like her the first year i feel terrible forever not loving her yeah she is awesome and when she interviewed astrid here's somebody who has been interviewed over the years about the Beatles, but obviously somebody who is not someone who is in the spotlight. And I remember Terry had her chair very close to Astrid and was facing her and speaking in a very calm, quiet, conversational tone, like almost trying to set things up, you know, and we're in this packed ballroom, but she was trying to make it as intimate as possible, obviously to put Astrid at ease. That's something that comes with skill and experience. So, yeah, there have been a lot of moments where I had a lot of respect for her over the years. And she is definitely a Chicago treasure. You come out here, you hear about Terry Hemmert a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You ask any Chicago radio personality at any station about Terry Hemmert, they will go on for hours about how much Mm -hmm. they love her. Now we're just going to, we're going to make it a little bit more generic. Your favorite moments you know, in my, in my notes about what we we're going to talk about tonight, I just started writing out memories and I have 16 things that I need <laughs> to pick three from. I will start with the one that is number one, the one, the first one that comes to mind. And this was in August of 2001, which was just a great fest anyway. That was a really we had, good one. I mean, that was where I think the entire weekend, and I am not exaggerating in the least, I think we maybe got a total of eight hours sleep. Like we were at jam sessions all night and then would get a couple hours sleep, have brunch and then get right back to it. There was one of the jam sessions because there were many that went on all over the hotel. But there was one that I remember being just inside this big corridor that goes to some of the ballrooms. And it was just this very loud, noisy while my guitar gently weeps. A lot of people, there probably were, I don't even know how many people, but, and there were people who had electric instruments and there was a drummer and it was just loud and amazing. And it's like everybody who walked by got sucked into participating in it. I mean, it was great at the time, 
But the reason why it sticks in my mind is that it almost felt like a pre-requiem because 9-11 happened a month later and then George Harrison died two months after that or not even two months after that. It was almost like somehow we knew that something very dark was going to be coming up and we we had to prepare ourselves for it. You had to do that with music. I mean, it's just how uh, the day after 9-11, Ferg, did you ever listen to Scott Muni on 104.3 out of New York, the classic rock station? No, I was out in New York by then. Okay. Yeah, I was out of the area. So Scott Muni was on 104.3, did a midday show. And at noon, every day, he played four Beatles songs because it was his belief that people needed to hear the Beatles every day. On September 12th, he didn't go into the station because he lived in Jersey and they told him, you know, don't make the commute. Whoever was subbing for him played an hour, a full hour of Beatles. Starting with yesterday and including songs like Let It Be and All Together Now and you know, we needed the Beatles to get through those couple months. We yeah. really did. I mean, on, on 9-11, Let It Be was constantly running through my head. That's what my brain kept going to, I guess, to keep myself from completely losing it. So yeah, yeah that While My Guitar Gently Weeps, it was almost like it was without even realizing it, we were all preparing ourselves for something. And I just remember that was such a great fest too. I mean, we were still coming down from a high from it when September 11th happened. That was what brought us down. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Ferg? So Sarah and I met in uh, late 1990 and I took her to Beetlefest in March of 91. And we figured, well, we got a couple weeks to do something, so we decided to go to Chicago in 1991 for Beetlefest just for the weekend. Uh, we drove, so it was oh, like wow. a 100-hour whirlwind trip, <laughs> but it was, uh, you guys said everything about the hotel is much, much, much nicer than the one in New Jersey was. Terry Hammert was really great, and that was the first time that I saw Mitch Weissman play with Liverpool, and ah, okay. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know he was there. I had seen him um, on Broadway, Beatlemania in 1978. And I was just amazed wow. that he was still doing it. <laughs> and he was really good. They played Figure of Eight and a lot of uh, solo stuff then. Unfortunately, I don't remember anything we ate. <laughs> I'm sure we got Chicago pizza somewhere. I just, I could not tell you where. But um, yeah, we drove in. It was really, it was a lot of traffic. But we got to the hotel, stayed there a couple nights, and then left, I think, Monday morning. It was a totally different vibe. Yep. Such a beautiful hotel. I'm sorry that uh, that they remodeled it and made it worse. <laughs> that giant thing that looks like a turd is still there. They, they uh, left that, that I don't remember. That I don't remember. <laughs> I don't fiendish. remember much about it. Um, yeah, we call it the fiendish thingy. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, we weren't even engaged yet. We were just still boyfriend and girlfriend, but we had a great, mm. it was really a lot of fun. It's the first trip we ever took uh, together, so. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really cool that she wanted to go. Yeah, there was definitely a different vibe between there and Jersey because Mm -hmm. it seemed to me that the Jersey Fest, it was basically, they were trying to make you have alcohol no matter where you were, for one (laughs) thing. It's like hot dogs. Can we find something that's (laughs) that's just like a nice, something nice to drink and snack on? Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, at the Chicago Fest, it's not like the hotel is making you drink, but there is no lack of oh yeah like like we would often see like when we would check in and i have pictures of this various years where you have the um 
bellman luggage carts. They would just have them all lined up so they could bring your stuff up to your rooms. And there would be carts that would have maybe one or two suitcases or overnight bags and then like four cases of beer (laughs) (laughs) or people like bringing in like the rolling coolers. I mean... (laughs) I mean, there. yeah, there was that, but it's it just seemed like it was a, a much more friendly vibe at the Chicago Fest. Like, yeah. the, th- the theory we have is probably because it's more family friendly because it's in August, it's during the summer when families can go. Oh, and, yeah. Well, it's also, it's just the Midwest. I mean, having experienced both places, I mean, I'm not saying that New York and New Jersey, I mean, it's friendly, but in a different way, and it's not as demonstrative you kind of have to take the friendliness with an edge of sarcasm (laughs) in New York and New Jersey. Like it's, it's not quite as obvious where in the Midwest people are just kind of down to earth and it's like, Hey, how are you? And it's, it's not like they're going to beat you up or anything. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be kind of along the same vibe in terms, at least in terms of like hotelage, I guess there's that theme going on here. But I was telling Lisa earlier that there was the, this special moment that I wanted to mention. Oh, thank God and I'm going to totally finally hear it. about this thing. And just last night, it hit me. I was like, oh my God, I remember now. <laughs> it was either 2006 or 2007. This was back when the fest was still like a massive seller. When there would have to have an overflow hotel. And yeah. uh, there was one year, for whatever reason, like we booked ours too late and we couldn't get the Hyatt for all three nights. We had to get one of the nearby hotels for one or two nights and then move over to the Hyatt later. Hmm. So we stayed at the Sofitel. So we would go to the fest, we'd buy some stuff, then we'd go back to the Sofitel, <laughs> uh, which I think is a different hotel now, and yeah, uh, drop it's, off it's our a stuff. Now. Uh, that's right, yeah. But we'd drop off our stuff and then go back to the Hyatt. Well, one trip on the way back to the Hyatt, we're just walking and then coming from the opposite direction was this really large oh, guy. Okay. Yeah, you know where this is going. This really large guy comes by, and I'm just looking at him. I was like, there's something about him. There's just something damn familiar about him. And after he passed, I said this in my mind. I did not say this out loud. I didn't whisper it. This was only happening in my mind. I said, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear that was Horatio Sands from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I did not say it out loud. I did not move my lips or anything. I just looked at Lisa and she said, I know, isn't that weird? (laughs) It's like she heard me say that. (laughs) And it really was him because later on when we were in the ballroom for one of the events that night, Terry gave a shout out to him because he's I think he's from Chicago where he like at least spent a lot of time here. And yeah, he and Fred Armisen were there. We didn't see Fred. Really? Yeah. I do remember a couple of weeks later, there was an interview with Fred Armisen in the Chicago Reader, which is kind of an undergroundish newspaper here. And I was mm-hmm. reading it, and he said, yeah, I was just at a Beatles fan convention out by O'Hare, and somebody dared try to ask me a question when I was browsing through the records. <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, what the f*** do you think you're doing? I'm looking at records, you want to ask me something? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not really necessarily a directly fest-related thing, but man, just... That was just one of the weirdest things, and I just can never... I I suddenly don't know where I'm going with that. (laughs) I think we mentioned this as well earlier, but the sound-alike slash Beatle Opportunity knocks. Hmm. uh, Not just the actual competition performances, but they had open auditions that would be on Saturday afternoon that anybody could go in and watch. 
So it's like you kind of got two shows. You got to see all the people auditioning and then the 10 acts that they chose to be in the ballroom that night. And the auditions were in this room called the Forum, which was like a room that had uh, like a little stage up front and then a semicircle of steps going up like risers that were big enough that you could have tables on, but they would just have rows of chairs. And it just had a very friendly, cozy vibe to it. People would get up to audition and sometimes they'd be nervous and everybody would applaud and cheer them on. And it was just always a great feel. And there were a couple great moments, like one time when we were in actually at the one in Jersey, there was a guy who was going to audition with the song Mother from from Chicago from Plastic Ono Band. And Mm. the accompanist he was supposed to have ditched him. So he's like, well, I'm just going to sing it solo. And he started singing it a cappella. And everybody just kind of started like a little clap as a beat to kind of just help him. And then a guy went up and did he play guitar or piano? Guitar. Yeah. A guy just jumped up on stage and started playing guitar to back him up. I don't think he up. was even on stage. I think he just played yeah. from the crowd. You know, that just, I mean, that kind of feel. Or like one time there was a guy who sat down in Chicago, sat down at the piano because they had a piano up on stage and just started playing the beginning of Golden Slumbers. And everybody in the room was like, <gasps> you know, just because it <laughs> sounded so good. Oh, and there was uh, this really old guy named uh, Johnny Michaels who came to Beetlefest every year. This guy had to have been like in his 70s or 80s. Wow. And he he wanted to audition with um, the song I Need You. And Martin Lewis always ran these auditions. So he said, is there anybody who can accompany me? So Martin Lewis was like, does anybody have a guitar who knows I need you? And as I like <laughs> to say, that that would be like being at a gynecology convention asking if anybody knows how to deliver a baby. I mean, <laughs> this guy, Eric, who was very well known at the fest, jumps up on stage right away and played along with him. But there were just some great performances just just because it well, it felt very informal, but yet the people who auditioned took it seriously. And it was also kind of almost anything goes, you know, like there was one, a guy one year, his performance was doing a dramatic reading from in his own right. Wow. So it wasn't a musical performance. He got up and did a dramatic reading of John's poem. That's crazy. (laughs) And there was this guy, Big D, who was, you know, as Martin Lewis always said, was from Vincennes, Indiana. This big, big guy with a 12-string acoustic guitar. And this guy was like a master of the guitar. But he played a day in the life, like almost like classical guitar on a 12-string, like including the crescendos. And it's like, oh my God. (laughs) His hand was just strumming, like going that crescendo, like strumming so fast. He, He had to do that twice. He did not break a string. Wow. But then at the jam session, an hour later, he broke like three strains in the first five minutes. And then yeah. there was um, there was a duo every year, a father and son, Derek and the daddy-o. The daddy-o always would, before they performed, he always would have to say how much being there meant to him and being able to share this with his son. And it was cool to just every year see... Derek go from being, you know, a preteen to a teenager to a college student. And then there was Nate and Olivia. I think the first year we saw them was a brother and sister duo. 
Nate was probably 11 or 12 playing the bass and his sister was a little bit younger than him. She sang. And the first year they performed Come Together Hmm. with just bass and vocals and they brought the house down. (laughs) The last one I want to mention is Eric and Teresa. It was two people came out on stage completely covered in white sheets and they did um out what it's from the wedding album that john and yoko thing it's kind of like a takeoff on the um the john and marcia thing which i think was uh mike nichols and elaine may or something yoko yoko but it was like yoko john it turned out it was this guy, Eric, who had played guitar for Johnny Michaels and Terry Hemmert. <laughs> like, I figured it out because that year Terry was wearing uh, Crocs that were like, and I think this was like when Crocs were first a thing. She was wearing like gray Crocs and I could see them peeking out from underneath her sheet. So it's like they basically did like the bag thing. <laughs> That's funny. But it was just, I mean, the sound likes were always just so much fun and you never knew what you were going to get. It was just great variety. And I always preferred that far more than the Battle of the Bands. Well, then I have a bad memory for Lisa because uh, we played the Battle of the Bands a couple of years in uh, oh, 87, 88 cool. when we were still in high school. My friend Mark, who I mentioned before, came with me in the first year, 86. We went back in 87. We were we had a five-piece band, and uh, it was really nerve-wracking playing in front of all those people. And then the uh, guitarist for Liverpool at the time, uh, what was his name? Jonathan Rapolo, I think was his name. He was sitting like front and center, you know, in front of the stage watching everybody, and it was just absolutely nerve-wracking. But the first year we played uh, Wait and Something, and it went over pretty well, but we didn't win. The second year, we thought we had a lock because Mark and I were in the orchestra and we brought some of our orchestra friends plus the orchestra teacher and we did Eleanor Rigby. Wow. (laughs) But we didn't win that year either. But it was a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, once in Jersey, we saw like this school swing band do a couple of tunes. They were amazing. Yeah, did they do like a hard day's night from the movie? Like, da 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 da. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. And they did, and they did like a swinging version of Norwegian Wood. And it was like, wow. I don't remember which year it was, but we were waiting outside the the uh, ballroom, and somebody was playing "Cry for a Shadow." It was like, no, perfect. It was really, really cool. Yeah, we. Some people I'm going to mention later. We heard them do it one year too. Yeah, and to be fair, Ferg, I mean. I just like the sound alikes better. Not yeah. saying that the battle of the bands. I mean, some years it actually did kind of suck, but Yo, yeah. there were there were some years that were there were some pretty amazing performances. And there was one that, in retrospect, I think it was in '98, but we didn't go to watch the battle of the bands. There was a group that did Mull of Kintyre with oh. a bagpiper. Oh, that was sound alikes wow. actually. Oh, it was. Yeah. Wait, how would they be able to do that? How would they have? Or was it just a guy playing the guitar or something? Was, yeah, you only need a guitar, really. Okay. But yeah, like the bagpipe player came in from the back of the ballroom and people just like in full went dress. Berserk. That's awesome. Yeah, some years it was, oh God, it was so bad. People wouldn't, they didn't know how to play sometimes or, and it was nerve wracking too because it, being in New Jersey, everybody's so friendly and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you would get on stage and, you had to use their equipment except for 
the instruments. Yeah. So you had to plug in. So the the thing after a minute, if we weren't playing, everybody would start yelling, "Plug and play." <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that kind of kind of got nerve wracking. I think the last year that we did it was the last year they had bands do two songs because there were so many bands doing oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they only did one after that. I think that year we lost to somebody who did um, uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Hmm. The, oh, that was good. It was really good. Wow. It was fun, though. There are things that always bug me about Battle of the Bands. I was like, first of all, you had people like in the full Beatles costumes who would spend like eight minutes going back and forth like this. And yes. Yeah, <laughs> just shut up and play. Yeah, exactly. Plug and play and shut up. <laughs> and then you have these bands who like would sing with British accents like, I want to hold your hand. Yeah. No, hand? No. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Oh, hand? Anyway, I'm going to change the, the subject a little bit here. Same, well, I mean, same topic, just same different vibe here. Uh, I'm doing this in a particular order. Another thing that made 1997 just an amazing fest, at least for me, this was one of the two years that I went with my coworkers and a couple of other friends of theirs whom I also knew from my school and church and things. We get to the Hyatt. Lori, our representative, is uh, checking us in, and she's talking at the uh, to the uh, check-in person, whatever you call those people. I suddenly can't, don't have a vocabulary. And nothing's happening for like a long, long time. We're like, what's going on? What is she doing out there? And we saw her face turn several shades of black <laughs> practically. And we don't know any of the conversation that's happening, except we do hear a couple of choice Anglo-Saxon words coming out of Lori's mouth every now and then. And uh, here's what we found out. They had originally booked the Hyatt for all three days of the fest, but then they decided, well, we don't want to go Friday. We'll just <gasps> oh, go Saturday. No. So they called the Hyatt to change the reservation. And it turns out they never changed the reservation. Oh, no. And when they didn't show up on Friday, they canceled the reservation. And Lori was just fuming. She was like ready to kill people. They had to call a manager over. Between the group that we were in, we had actually two rooms booked. So they said, okay, well, we got to find something here. And... They found out that there were two <laughs> rooms available that hadn't been booked. I think they were like emergency rooms left over for like, say, if the Pope shows up all of a sudden. So they take us to our rooms and we walk in. Uh -huh. Now, Ferg, you have seen the movie Help. I know you've seen that movie. Remember the apartment they lived in? That was the room we had. Wow. It was this mess. It was almost like... Uh, oh my god it was like there were there was a bed in the ground and it was like huge it had a stereo system and everything the only thing it didn't have was the the organ coming up out of the ground but other than that it was the help apartment did it come with a gardener i think there was a gardener but yeah wow. we were like holy sh the other half of our group their their room wasn't quite as big and nice but it was still pretty impressive but, uh, and there we were in this huge wow. honking room, man, do we even want to go at anything now? Yeah. <laughs> Cause there were couches and everything. And there, were, I think there were enough beds for everybody. <laughs> and just to be fair, we traded rooms with the other group the next night. So they could also, you know, have the, <laughs> so yeah, that, oh my goodness. I think I have a couple of pictures from there. Like there is a picture of me having my first line in Kugels <laughs> there. This is also another kind of combining some things into one, but the jam sessions, that kind of informal people get together and start playing and more people join. And sometimes some of the Beatle Fest guests join, like 
there was one year where I, I even have a picture of this where we had George Harrison's sister Louise was a guest a couple years and this guy who was uh, the weatherman for Good Morning America at the time, his name was uh, Tony Perkins. Uh, he came, I think he came one year just to attend and another year to mm. actually do some segments for Good Morning America. So they, I have pictures of them dancing away at a jam session and just the impromptuness and how you'd have people with different instruments, people of different ages. It was just... Like there was one year um, that we were at a jam session until it was getting light out. Wow. That may have been 2001. There was a... What? 2002. Oh, okay. There was a Beatles cover band from Puerto Rico called Jukebox. They call themselves Jukebox because they know everything. So they were playing every song that people wanted to hear all night long. But my favorite... Including the BBC stuff. And I mean, there are some songs that I'll hear and it makes me remember <laughs> just good jam sessions. But my favorite jam session memory was from our first Beatle Fest in 98. There were two battling jam sessions kind of in the same area. And there's this guy who calls himself Danny Donuts. He's a comedian and a performer and an artist. And he has become kind of part of the Beatle Fest team almost like a Weird Al Yankovic type where he does little like song parodies and comedy sketches. And... I heard him on Dr. Demento once, by yeah. the way. I mean, he does all kinds of things. And he is really funny, though he does kind of annoy me because he insists on singing in this very off-key, weird voice <laughs> where he really can sing. But, you know, we're having these two battling jam sessions and he shows up and he's walking around carrying a plastic bird bath that he was using as a percussion instrument. <laughs> and, and I don't know why, like, I don't know what it went with, but that was his thing like that year. And he starts making this like when people like in between songs, he starts making this impassioned speech about how Beetlefest is about inclusion and togetherness. And we should all just have one big jam session and be one big happy family. <laughs> I know he probably expected everyone to be like, yeah, and when he was done. Everybody just went back to their respective jam sessions <laughs> and he had to go take his bird bath and go somewhere else. <laughs> and I didn't know who he was because I hadn't seen him perform yet. Because at the time, like now he's an actual like goes up on the stage and does stuff. At the time, he wasn't really known yet. He would just kind of go into the sound alikes and do things like that. So I had no idea who he was. I'm like, who the hell is this guy with a bird bath? <laughs> in his impassioned plea, he also offered to perform Lucy in disguise as Linus. Yeah, that was like <laughs> one of his... he did in 96, but I wasn't there. I didn't see yeah. that. <laughs> wow. When you walk in, there's escalators going up to the second floor lobby, because the lobby is two stories. But then there's a set of stairs going down to the lower level meeting rooms and things like that. And there was a big space under those stairs. Oh, yes. Which was another jam session location. And yes. like when you walked in the front doors of the Hyatt, you would hear the distant sounds of tambourines because there, <laughs> there would be, you know, like there wasn't a lot of room under there. So it's not like people could have like electric guitars or drum sets or anything. So it was mostly just some acoustic guitars or ukuleles or something and tambourines. Yeah. So there was always a good time under there and a lot of beer. 
But that was another thing. When they renovated the hotel, they took out the wall, I think. So it's like the the under the stairs, I don't think is a thing anymore. Or it's just not the same. That was definitely one thing that I noticed was pretty much the same at both fests was that there was like a big area where people would gather and sing and pretty much anywhere you would find like a couple people together singing or it was everywhere. Oh, yeah. In both places. Yeah. I remember one year we were walking through the lobby, like just right by the exit. There were a couple of guys standing around singing, come give me a Dinah Hunt. (laughs) So last one I picked was 96, uh, listening to Anthology 2 in the ballroom for the first time. Oh, wow. I don't know. I think it came out that day or maybe it was a few days before. I couldn't find uh, specific dates when the fest was. But just listening to that and I was, you know, so prepped and waiting for it because the first one I loved the first one and I listened to it over and over and over again and the second anthology I knew what was going to be on there I heard some of it in the in the special because I watched that I don't know how many times after that too but just listening with everybody else and people cheering and people laughing you know with the songs especially um the Anya Birkin sing I think I think we just listened to the first disc and you know people laughing at that one that was (laughs) I really like it was like I don't know how to describe it. There's just, it just brings everybody together. Like you guys were saying before about Oh yeah. It's the music. That's, that's what it's all about. And, uh, I remember what was the first song on the anthology too? Jeez. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, it was the, um, uh, real love. I'm sorry. And then uh, I think, yes, it is was after that. And I knew when they first started playing it, what take it was, or I knew the take because it was on one of the, uh, unsurpassed master disc. And I was volume two, I believe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I was waiting for John to say the string broke, but then it went into the <laughs> it faded into a new mix of the yeah. uh, the release one. I'm like, oh no, what did they do? What are they doing now? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that on anthology. <laughs> yeah. But the rest of it was I really enjoyed it and we all enjoyed it together. So that was really that was a nice moment. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't do that for anthology. Oh, then again, anthology three came out right after the Chicago Fest. And there was actually a listening party at uh, one of the casinos here. And I actually bumped into somebody that I had met at the fest over there. Oh, <laughs> so that, cool. that was cool, having a little mini fest reunion. In fact, it was somebody from a jam session. And which is going to bring me to this. One of my favorite moments is kind of continuing a theme Lisa started. The 1997 Saturday night into Sunday morning jam. I, I don't know the best way to describe it. I, I know. And I wasn't even there. Brian <laughs> from New York. <laughs> yeah, there was this one guy that he was there in 96. He had actually been going to the Chicago one for a while, but he mainly went to the Jersey one. That was his home. I think he was from Staten Island and everybody was calling him Brian. That's how I knew his name was Brian because I noticed he had some kind of accent. He's, I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from New York. <laughs> oh, you mean because of the way I talk? <laughs> Wasn't there Gary from New Jersey? No, Gary was from L.A. No, but there was a guy from New Jersey. Too, there was Tony from New Jersey. Oh, to- well, of course, it, Tony, Tony would be yeah. from New Jersey. <laughs> well, yeah, like Tony and Brian knew each other. And, and Brian, by the way, was in that band that I saw play Cry for a Shadow in Jersey. Oh, really? And his band also did My Bonnie one year with him on lead. And he even had that John Lennon Rickenbacker with the the like the pale beige color and everything. Oh, yes. I, that, and, I, that's ringing a bell for me, yeah. I think he was part of what became known on Rec Music Beatles as the John Calabro Band. At the Chicago Fest, he always had that gorgeous Fire Glow Rickenbacker 12-string mm. that I was so jealous of. Well, not so much anymore for right. a certain reason, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
he would kind of take charge of the jam sessions a lot, but he was, he was good. And, uh, oh man, it, it won't be long. That little riff. That sounds so good on a Rick 12 string. I bet. But there's something about the Saturday night jam and it was in this, uh, area that had little meeting rooms around it. It was underneath the pool and under the pool was this big fountain. So people called the fountain room. And that's where the, the good jams usually were. And I had my uh, Fender Squire 2 Strat, the cheapo Korean thing, and uh, my amp with me. So I kind of invited myself into that one. And <laughs> we were just playing for hours and hours and hours. And there were some people in the crowd yelling for monkeys tunes. Oh, and no. I was like, yeah, guys, let's do some monkeys. Come on. If it weren't for the Beatles, the monkeys never would have happened. And all, yeah. it's like, no, this isn't monkey fest. We're just doing Beatles stuff. And. <laughs> People kept yelling, monkeys, monkeys, monkeys. And then Brian decided, okay, let's do something. You, you guys know words? And a few of us did. I said, yeah, I know words. He pointed to me and he said, you're doing Mickey's pot. I said, what? I said, dude, you hear my voice? My, I do not have a Mickey voice. He's, he's like, well, I don't know Mickey's pot. I only know Peter's pot. So you got to do Mickey's pot. <laughs> you're freaking kidding me. So here, here I am. I'm I'm able to pick out the chords really easily. You know, it's no problem for me. I'm playing the C sharp minor and, you know, and I'm doing the Mickey part, you know, I'm despite having sung badly for several hours already, you know, I'm, I'm still managing to do it and I'm trying to get the Mickey tone, you know, that, that <laughs> mellow sound that he has. And then when it gets to the chorus, you know, I can't reach those notes. So I'm literally oh. just yelling the chorus. <laughs> the words that never were true to spoken. And, it was just the, the funnest jam ever, too. It, like the manager comes by and says, "Okay, guys, you got it. You got to end now. You got to call it. You got to call it a night." So it's, we're breaking it down and everything. I bring my guitar back to the room. Everybody who's whom I'm rooming with in the help apartment was already asleep. Oh, jeez! But I wasn't ready to go to sleep, and my throat was just on fire. <laughs> So I grabbed a Mountain Dew out of the fridge and I just walked around the hotel for a while and I just wa meandered over the fountain room. There were still some people in there, including Brian and Tony. <laughs> Brian had his guitar, Tony had his Hofner bass, and they were just singing random songs with a small crowd, a very small crowd, like five or six people gathered around them. And, and they were just doing some random stuff, mostly monkeys stuff. And by the way, the uh, Brian and Tony's band is called the Blue Meanies, and they do a lot of monkeys stuff. You can see yeah. a lot of their videos on uh, YouTube. And so I just kind of sat there with them, singing along with the uh, singing along with them. Like at it, like one of them started singing "Because" by the Dave Clark Five, and of course <laughs> I had to add the lower harmony because I like to do that. And <laughs> and it was just so much fun. And Brian looks at me and says, you know this one? And then he whispers something to Tony. And then Tony's like, do, 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 do. He said, take it. It's like, oh my God. Yep, I know. And I think it was like 4 a.m. when I finally got back to the room and turned him to sleep. And the next morning I was in the in the marketplace. There were people saying, hey, that was a great jam last night. And there were people dancing in the fountain and everything. That was just so awesome. And That's cool. I never experienced that kind of a jam again, but it, it, I'm sure it happened. I think it's more that, you know, I, I just kind of felt intimidated or something. Something that I learned in 1996 was that if you do What's the New Mary Jane, that <laughs> will get you shut down really fast, really fast. Because well the, man <laughs> the manager came, it was like, I think it was only midnight. Or no, it was, it was like 1 a.m. Because the fest, the fest activities end at midnight. So like hours after that, there are jams, but... We had this wonderful idea in 96 that we should do What's the New Mary Jane. 
<laughs> there were enough of us who were bootleg collectors. This wasn't out yet. We only knew it from bootlegs. Yeah. And the manager comes in. All right, okay, guys, you got to stop. You got to stop. <laughs> and someone in that jam told me, yeah, there are three songs that will end a jam right away. What's the new Mary Jane, Helter Skelter, and I don't remember the other one. <laughs> you know what? We just answered all three of the questions that uh, were formulated. Uh, can I just? Sure. Okay. So first of all, uh, Peter and Gordon were at the fest. I forget what year it was. 2006. And, and I never really paid attention to them. Didn't really care much for them. I just knew from like Dave Barry when he had written about 60s things and Beatles things like he called Peter and Gordon two British weenies and Chad and Jeremy <laughs> were two other British weenies. That was me. Oh, I, I called Chad I and Jeremy two Dave other Barry. British weenies. No, you I sure? No, because you said, well, what does that make Chad and Jeremy? And I said two other British weenies. <laughs> but they performed, you know, and I was glad to have seen them because Gordon has since passed on. Yeah. They were awesome. They were fun. They sang fantastically. I mean, it was it was really great. And I also hadn't realized that I knew more of their songs than I thought that I did. Mm, yeah. And I just remember when they were performing, there were random times the audience would cheer for them and their faces would, like Peter and Gordon's faces would light up like nobody's business. They were so thrilled. Yeah. So that That's was a awesome. great one. And then there was one year that Liverpool performed Note Perfect you know my name, look up the number. Oh, man. That was 2006, too. I mean, they had too. every sound effect, every little thing. And I mean, the guy, the t the tall guy, I forget his name. Do you remember his name? Which um, tall guy? He comes out with the saxophone. That was John Merhavi. To do Brian Jones' saxophone playing at the end. <laughs> and, the, and the cruder guy put a little mustache on himself. Yeah, the, like when they did the, uh, oh, and who's the keyboard guy? Oh, was Drew that uh, Drew? Yeah. Yeah, Drew. At the end, he did the little, like, John's carrying on at the end. You know, rah, 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 rah. Yeah. I think Mark Lapidos was sitting right behind us. He was laughing his ass off. He must not have <laughs> known they were going to do this. And it was perfect. Yeah, he was in hysterics. So that, oh. was, that was great. And then I got to mention... The year that Sean participated in the Battle of the Bands. Oh. Now, this is kind of a weird occurrence because for a brief time in 2003, 2004, I was a big fan of Clay Aiken from American Idol. I was caught by this insane fangirly bug and happened upon an internet forum that was made up of a lot of women like me, you know, women who were in their, like, say, late 20s through mid 40s, women who were professionals, who had college degrees, who were uh, married and had kids and had all kinds of stuff going on in their lives, but yet they were bit by this bug. <laughs> and we had this crazy, insane, fun year or two of meeting up at concerts and talking online and just going berserk over this kid who came in second on American Idol. I met quite a few amazing people through this. And one of them was, um, there was this woman, Joyce, who was from McHenry County, which is northern Illinois. And she went to Beetlefest every year with several friends of hers, one of whom I'm still Facebook friends with, like Joyce has kind of gone on to other things in her life and isn't really on social media anymore. But Joyce and her friends 
I don't know if they were in an actual Sweet Adeline's group or if it was something like that. But, you know, like a barbershop singing kind of thing where they would go to competitions and it was a really big deal. And there was one year that they wanted to be in Battle of the Bands with some other people and perform. Oh, God, I, suddenly, I call your name. I call your name as it was done by the Mamas and the Papas. Oh, cool. And with Joyce singing Cass Elliot's part. And I don't remember how this all happened, but Sean ended up playing, was it bass for them? No, I had my twelve, my acoustic okay. twelve string. You volunteered so, me for that. That's right. I volunteered You volunteered him. me, and then you told me that you volunteered Yes. Me. So there were a couple, I mean, it was kind of cool and fun. Like, they called themselves the Apple Scruffs, and they had shirts made up with uh, a little Apple Scruffs logo on the front and on the back. We all could pick different names, like different types of apples. You know, we got together and had rehearsals a couple times and then performed for it. And I mean, they didn't win, but I thought the performance was fantastic. Again, because Joyce just sang Mama Cass's part perfectly. And uh, her friends, uh, Winona and Cassie, did the backup. I thought it was Carrie. Carrie. Carrie, whatever, uh, did the backup <laughs> perfectly. And it was just a lot of fun to just kind of be, I mean, yeah, I wasn't performing, but as I still felt kind of part of it. And that was a really good, a good memory and a really good time. That's awesome. I don't know if this was your experience, Ferg, when you performed, but something that was really apparent to me when we were like waiting to be called up on stage and all that was just how much ego was backstage among all these Beatles bands. Yes. And I was like, are you effing kidding me, people? Here you guys are thinking you are the sh**, but you're in a Beatles cover band at a fan convention. Yeah. Get over yourselves. Yep. Including from the people I was with. I was like, really? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I'm sure we thought that too when we brought the strings with us. <laughs> the way people were just bitching about everybody else it's like oh yeah. look at them they do it's like shut up <laughs> just have fun thankfully i've grown since then can i tell a quick uh Please. extracurricular beetle fest thing yeah, i did absolutely so Please do. it's 1988 i just graduated from high school um i think it was either late august or early september mark lapidos called me i was like really why are you calling me so apparently there was a show called people are talking it was a talk show uh, obviously <laughs> 90-minute talk show that was on Channel 9, which was in Secaucus next to the hotel where Beetlefest took place. So I thought they you were, were going to say next to a dump and a yeah. swamp and everything else. Yep. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, next to, next to where, like, the mob dumped the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were going to do a segment on Albert Goldman's book, which was oh, just God. out. Oh, um, <laughs> So he called me and a bunch of other people in the area to be in the audience just you know to have beetle people in the audience beetle peeled to like and throw fruit and <laughs> <laughs> well he, albert goldman wasn't actually there uh they had mark lapidos or lapidos as the richard bay called him <laughs> richard bay was the host and uh julia baird was there i remember that show yeah <laughs> julia baird was there and <laughs> stephen gaines <laughs> oh my god I remember there was a similar lineup on her on uh oh what the what's that guy the loudmouth guy oh Morton, Morton Downey, Downey Jr. Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, like I think they had like Stephen Gaines on it, and they had they had a, like somebody put a copy of the Lennon book in a fish tank. Here's what I think about this book. 
I think that show was done out of Channel 9, too. Yes, it was. It was. Yeah, yeah. that was... Channel 9 was a good place for lots of loud yelling shows. <laughs> hey, we got that on our cable system here, and I remember the Crazy Yeti commercials. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But that was that was exciting. I was watching it yesterday. It was kind of embarrassing because I kept mugging for the camera. <laughs> oh, my God. I got to look for that. But it was it was cool that he called me. I was just I was not expecting it, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll come. I'm not doing anything." I think it was like Monday or Tuesday morning or something like that. Is this Robert Ferguson? It's yeah. Mark Lapidos. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to be in a Beatles thing? Huh? You want to? We're doing a Beatles thing. That's why I'm calling you. Huh? No, the Mark Lapidosis thing ever is when he would call number wristband numbers for door prizes oh he was terrible and, and he would just you know like other people like terry would kind of have a list that she would already pick out like she would call like a a number like it began with zero one that began with one you know kind of have it be systematic where mark would always do the same stupid things he would say 909 or i should maybe <laughs> say 910 since that's the one after 909 it's like Dude, you do this every freaking year. <laughs> okay, uh, we're looking for uh, 314. 314. <laughs> no, no, nobody, ha nobody has 314? Uh, okay, 315. <laughs> Silence. It was every single time. Dude, ha hand it over to somebody else. Yeah. Let somebody else pick numbers. But that was kind of the... Part of the appeal of Beetlefest is that sort of family corniness that yeah. the Lupitos is brought to the table. Yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't something very slick and, and I shouldn't say unpro you know, not professional because I mean, they did do a hell of a job, but it wasn't like it was something run by an event company or, yeah. you know, like it was definitely a, a family, a family and friends kind of effort. Yeah, for sure. One other thing I, I just want to tell, this was on my, sh on my long list, but uh, I think it was at um, 2000, I think it was. Yeah, it had to be 2000 um, when I was in one of the trivia game show, they called it, the biggest yes. trivia game show. And I just remember like this was right after, oh, it was 2002. It had to be 2002 because one of the questions was on the revised cover of Paul McCartney's Driving Rain album. Why is Paul barefoot? They, that's not how he asked the question. He asked, okay, now, why is Paul McCartney barefoot on the cover of, and I buzzed in, oh. <laughs> and he finished the question on the, on the revised cover of Driving Rain. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so I, ju I just said, because um, he's dead. <laughs> and then the girl next to me buzzed in, and she said, because he wanted to take his shoes off so he wouldn't scruff up the cover of the sports car that he was jumping into. <laughs> and she got it right. Wow. And I looked at her and I said, how in the hell did you know that? <laughs> and she said, well, I just read about that in a magazine article about uh, the, the photo shoot and all this. And I was like, well, whatever. And then the <laughs> next question that came up. Now, we had just watched A Hard Day's Night in the ballroom minutes earlier. The next question after that was, and I quote, who was that posh bird who gets everything wrong? <laughs> And we're all just standing there. We're all like looking at each other like, huh? And then suddenly I was like, oh. And then I buzzed in. I said, Susan. Susan. <laughs> and I got it right. And the girl next to me looked at me and said, how the hell did you know that? 
I said, I, I just saw a hard day's night like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> anyway, if you don't cooperate, you won't meet Susan. And who's this Susan when she's at home? Only Susan Campy, our resident teenager. You'll have to love her. She's your symbol. Oh, you mean that posh bird who gets everything wrong? Was that the year that I won? I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, in fact, you're, I'm going to turn on my camera for a moment here. See that poster I'm pointing to? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I chose for my prize from the prize <laughs> bin. Oh. Because okay. I wanted that poster. I wanted it. So. <laughs> All right, well, a quick story that I want to tell. There was one year, because I don't know if uh, you ever experienced this, Ferg, but just like there was audience participation for Let It Be, there was also a lot of audience participation for help. Different yes. things like when... Um, like when John was dialing the phone number, uh, people would count how many times he, he he dialed like 13 numbers. And like when they were yelling, Ringo, Ring, like when they were looking for him in the Bahamas, everybody would yell that. So they were or like when the old ladies say, wave, go on, wave, you know, like everybody would wave. And there was like a guy sitting a couple rows ahead of us with a little girl. And they were both like, participating and when the movie was over and we were getting up to leave i saw that the little girl had down syndrome and that really it just kind of got to me that this might be like their thing together that they're yeah. beatles fans together and that they come to beetle fest and it's just like their special thing that they have and around probably Maybe around that time, I had read a book that William Shatner wrote about uh, the experience of Star Trek conventions, because he mm -hmm. would go to these conventions, you know, he'd be ushered in, he'd do his talk, and then he'd leave. And he decided to actually start finding out about these things. And like, who were these people who went to these things? Who arranged these things? How did they start? And the book is extremely entertaining. And even though it's about a completely different fandom, there's a lot of things that you can, a lot of parallels that you can see with Beetlefest. Sure, yeah. And he learned so much because he was just assuming this is just a bunch of losers who live in their mom's <laughs> basements. And he realized that was absolutely not, not it at all, especially yeah. when he realized that the very first Star Trek convention, which was in 1972 in New York City, was put together by four women. <laughs> So that just kind of knocks out the male nerd stereotype right there. Right, yeah. And like four young women, they were all like maybe in their early 20s. So he talked about how at Star Trek conventions, like early on in the, the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of disabled people who would come because when Star Trek started being on like Channel 11, you know, Chan I mean, you know, Channel 11 out of New yeah. York sh st mm -hmm. showed Star Trek 85 times a day. Yeah. You know, when you had people who were disabled back then, before the Americans with Disabilities Act, before a lot of accessibility, before a lot of things happened, a lot of these people were homebound. And they would watch Star Trek because and get into it or read science fiction because they had to entertain themselves at home because going out into the outside world wasn't accessible for a lot of people. Right. And that kind of opened up a whole new world for them. And they would come to the Star Trek conventions. And it's like you had people who were disabled, you know, and maybe felt conspicuous in their real life because they were using crutches or in a wheelchair or had difficulties. But at a Star Trek convention, when you have people dressed up like Klingons and, 
aliens and all kinds of stuff, a guy in a wheelchair doesn't stick out. <laughs> right, yeah. And how on the other end of the spectrum, you had people who were very shy and reserved in their real life, but they could come to a Star Trek convention and wear a costume and kind of be another person for a day and kind of bring themselves out of their shell. So yep. that just kind of, even though at Beetlefest at that time, I think nowadays there might be more cosplay. Back when we went, you know, you'd maybe see a guy in a Sergeant Pepper outfit or, you know, a couple dressed like John and Yoko circa 1969 and in all white. But you didn't really see a lot of people dressed up. But I think it's still that same kind of vibe that, oh yeah, you know, you go to something like Beetlefest where you have that kind of thing in common. It's like everybody is welcome and nobody is different or weird or conspicuous. So right. that was kind of a nice thing to, to, to really think about. Any other final thoughts? One thing I just got to mention, because you were talking about anthology too, I can't let this conversation with Fur go by without a mention of ShopRite. Oh, good Because <laughs> when anthology two came out, I think at that time releases were on Tuesdays. Yeah. Now this was before SoundScan, I think, really came into play, where uh, retailers were really held to the release date. And if they sold a product before the, the release date, they would be penalized. Like, I think that happened probably sometime in the early 2000s. But obviously, it wasn't a big deal in 1996, because when Anthology 2 was coming out, I was up, I think, visiting my boyfriend at Rutgers, and I had stopped off at the uh, the shop right in East Brunswick on the way up. <laughs> and they had a whole display of Anthology 2. And this was like the Saturday before it was supposed to come out. Wow. I'm like, holy sh**. So I'm like, yep, I'm buying it now. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I don't think either ShopRite wasn't committed to it. Like they didn't have SoundScan or they just didn't care. Right. Or they yep. didn't actually scan it in until that Tuesday. And man, you're bringing back some bad memories for me because I remember Anthology 1 came out. I asked for it for Christmas and it was so hard to wait until Christmas for it. When I'm watching like mm. news stories, I got the first one. It's like, oh, shut yeah. up. <laughs> and Anthology 2, I just went out and bought myself. Anthology 3, I mentioned before how that casino where they were having uh, the uh, listening. Oh, oh, no, here's what it was. Breakfast with the Beatles, which was on WCKG at the time, hosted by Kitty Lowy. They were doing a remote broadcast at the Empress Casino in Joliet. And um, they were playing bits and pieces off Anthology 3 as a preview. So you know, we're, we're there. And uh, when she was off the air, like Kitty Lowy would just ask some trivia questions. And I answered one of them correctly, just blindly guessing because she threw out, she said, what George Harrison song are these lyrics from? And nobody knew what the lyrics were from, so they were guessing every Beatles George Harrison song, like uh, <laughs> uh, Don't Bother Me, because none of us had ever heard these lyrics, and I just guessed Blue Jay Way, and I got it right. Turns out they were it was from an unreleased verse, which is why nobody oh. knew it. It was from, I think it was in uh, the I Me Mine book. Okay. And the prize was Anthology 3, oh, nice. which they would <laughs> ship to you. And they obviously didn't ship it until the release day, oh, no. just to make sure that I wouldn't okay. get it early. Because I was, it's like, it's Tuesday. It's, I didn't get it till like Friday. I was like, oh, <laughs> I know, boo freaking who. I had to wait three yeah. days, but still. Hey, I, I, won, I won something 
at a trivia contest once because I knew what Paul McCartney's middle name is. It's Paul. <laughs> like, people were guessing all kinds of weird things like Horatio and Buford. And so I'm like, it's Paul because his first name is James. And I just, I'd never thought about it before. I just realized now, like, the prize that I got, this was at uh, my hometown, which is Neptune, New Jersey. Uh, they had this little street festival right after Labor Day called Neptune Day. And I guess somebody from like a radio station was there giving away stuff. And what I won was a tote bag with promotional stuff from Budweiser. <laughs> I was still in high school. I don't remember what year this was, but I was definitely still in high school mm. because I never went to Neptune Day after I was done with high school because then I was off at college and just doing other things, you know, spending time in New York, New York City and things like that. But yeah, I just realized I was like 16 and I got this tote bag of like a Budweiser beach towel and a Budweiser Frisbee <laughs> and a can cooler. and all. But that's how the 80s were, you know? Like, well, it didn't have yeah. the yeah. actual oh, yeah. alcohol. No, but, uh, but I'm saying <sighs> in, nowadays they would never give an underage person Budweiser promotional stuff. Somebody would lose their no. over that. Hey, when I was but, 17. But in 1989, 1988, anything goes. Hey, when I was 17, like I won a call-in contest in uh, WCFL in Morris. Not the not the Chicago Federal Federation of Labor Station, but what the, the <laughs> a cheap facsimile of it. And it was a gift certificate to a bar and grill. And they actually wrote on it, no alcoholic beverages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to put my foot down and say we're ending it here. Okay. Mainly because it's like tomorrow in the Eastern time zone and we got to take the dog out. Okay. <laughs> so thank you both for being part of Autobiography of a Schnook. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you both. And uh, I hope to talk to both of you again sometime. Seacrest out. We recorded this segment back in October 2020, so that might put a little bit of context into a few brief comments that uh, the three of us may have made. And by the way, I once again thank my wife Lisa and my friend Ferg, who spent a great deal of time with me recording that. And by the way, I did not give him an opportunity to promote himself, and I feel terrible about that, so hopefully this will suffice. Ferg himself is an excellent podcaster. He does a fantastic job. He hosts the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. So if you are one of the millions of people who had an Atari 2600 back in the 80s, or if you're like me and you still play those games and you want to listen to some discussion about it, you absolutely owe it to yourself to listen to Ferg's podcast. And I'll link that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. And I will also link the other podcast that he hosts called Intari Visions, in which he and uh, two other friends discuss game titles that are available on the various Atari platforms, the Intellivision console, and the ColecoVision console. So that's a fun listen as well. I will link that as well. Now, commenting about what we had talked about here, uh, first of all, I'm happy to say I found my 10-inch Ruddles Shangri-La EP. And I will put a picture of that online for all to see. 
And uh, the high school swing band that I mentioned that we heard perform in New Jersey, they did not do a hard day's night. It was Can't Buy Me Love. And uh, they were dressed in those uh, swinging, jazzy hipster clothes, fedoras, loose ties, uh, the whole, uh, I don't want to say nine yards because nobody knows what nine yards means to me. Ten yards gets you a first down. Uh, the third song that I could not remember, the third song that I was told is guaranteed to end a jam session, Cold Turkey. And uh, I talked about, uh, and Ferg might have mentioned this too, about how easy it was to get bootlegs at the fest. Uh, not the case anymore. Really, probably around 1999, 2000, they really started to crack down on that because, well, Mark Lapidos doesn't want to get busted, so he has a very strict no bootlegs policy. There are still some dealers who kind of get away with it, but uh, they're very, very, very secretive about it. There was a mention of the John and Marsha recording. That was actually done by Stan Freeberg, and he played both parts, John and Marsha. That's from the 50s, actually, I believe. You also heard me talk about the Midnight Beat Hollywood Bowl bootleg CDs. Uh, I should be clear, I did not get Midnight Beat's version of that, but the Vigatone bootleg label had an offshoot called Repro Man, and Repro Man's bag was taking Midnight Beat's bootlegs and basically reproducing them in lower cost packages. I got their version of the Hollywood Bowl show, actually. And a correction here. Danny Donuts did Lucy in Disguise as Linus in 1997, not 96, and apparently that was his first ever performance at the fest. And by the way, if you hear any clicking or anything, that's my beagle Lola walking around. So, uh, yeah, something that I absolutely cannot emphasize enough. I don't think we really brought it out very well, but Neil Ennis, God rest his soul, he was such a super nice guy. That's the one thing I remember about him the most, is just what a nice guy he is. When I meet people who are famous or for whatever reason you might want to grab an autograph from, the thing that I'm always going to remember is what kind of person they're like. I don't care how rich they are, how famous they are, uh, how creative they are or what. It's the first thing that I care about is, are you a good person? And Neil Innes certainly, at least to... All the fans that were at the fest, he was always just such an incredibly nice guy. And it, when I found out that he died, I, my heart was just broken big time. It was such a tragedy to lose him. Having said that, I hope it wasn't a tragedy listening to this podcast, and I thank you for doing so. And I hope you continue to listen and uh, tell people that you care about to listen to it. If you don't like this podcast, then tell people you hate to listen to it. And if this particular episode was your first time listening to Autobiography of a Schnook, I encourage you to go through the back catalog. There are uh, 31 prior episodes. Actually, no, there are 33 prior episodes, I believe, because there are a couple of additional ones I did, and see what else I have to talk about. There's a lot of Beatles stuff in earlier ones as well, and a lot in future ones, so I hope you keep listening, and those of you who do listen regularly, in fact, anybody hearing this, please review me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, uh, Amazon, wherever you can put a review, please review this podcast. What else can I say other than, uh, well, there probably were some little snips of uh, copyrighted music and other sounds used in this podcast, but they were used simply for demonstration purposes and review and not for copyright infringement. Such sounds remain the property of their respective copyright holders. Now, coming up in the future, <laughs> I actually know what I'm going to be doing next. 
I don't know what I'm going to be doing for the next installment of music for Schnooks, but for at least one other story I'll be telling uh, next episode, it'll be about, well, <laughs> I don't know if anybody else's kind of diary autobiography kind of podcast has ever done this, but I'm going to be talking about uh, food. Going to be kind of weird, but I figured, why the heck not? Uh, you'll understand when you listen to chapter 33. But until then, as always, I just want to emphasize that, as I see it, the good goes around. And especially during these times that I think are getting better, make sure that those who aren't necessarily feeling it can feel that good going around. It's there for them. It's there for you. And I certainly wish all of you the best, my friends. Thank you again. Thank you again.